This is Jocko Podcast number 134 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Maybe I was always in the wrong place at the wrong time. I can see where someone could get that idea. But I actually don't think that. I don't think that at all. It's in fact quite the opposite. Now, looking back, of course, there were some some tough times. There were some awful times. I'd even go so far as to say there were some wretched times. There were nights filled with discomfort and stress and fear, and there was pressure. And sometimes that pressure was so great that I thought my mind just might fracture and break apart. But fortunately, I could tell you that I didn't break. There were times, there were times when I saw the cracks. I saw the cracks starting to split open and I had to work hard to keep it together. But that's the way it was in my old line of work. My old line of work had some definite downsides. Because on top of all that pressure and stress and fear and discomfort, there was death. Even during peacetime. Even during peacetime, I lost friends and I lost teammates. It goes with the personality profile, they would say. Risk takers. So, even peace provided little peace. And then once the war started, it just escalated. Not just for me, not by any stretch whatsoever. Every military member has dealt with death in some way over the past 17 years of war. Some more than others. There have also been life-changing wounds of which I was spared. I was lucky. But Many others were not so lucky. Because the bombs and the bullets and the IEDs and the mortars and the rockets, they do not care who you are at all. But for whatever reason, 
I made it through. I was lucky. And now my life goes on. And maybe I'm a little more paranoid than the next person. And maybe I don't always sleep that well. And maybe there's times when some thought or some memory catches me off guard. And I end up reliving a moment from the past. A moment from the past that I wish I could change. And you might think, wouldn't I just want to change it all? When I want to go back and erase all that pain and replace it with relief and replace it with ease and with comfort. And the answer to that question is no. In fact, it's not just no, it's hell no. Because wrapped up in that pain and wrapped up in that discomfort and wrapped up in that stress and anxiety, wrapped up in all that is the polar opposites of all those feelings. Inside all that turmoil, there was relief, there was certainty. There was happiness, there was focus and security, and there was peace. Peace of mind in knowing that no matter what, no matter what horrors befell me, things would be okay. And that is because I knew that my brothers would take care of me no matter what. You see, my old job allowed me to work with some of the best guys in the world. Not all of them. You've heard me talk about that before. There's substandard people in every organization in the world. There's a bell curve. And the bottom of the bell curve is filled with the same deficient people you'll find anywhere. Lazy, scamming, irresponsible, self-centered, whatever. But at the high end of that bell curve, the guys I worked with were righteous and noble and hardworking and it was humbling to be around them. Now, were they perfect? No. None of us are. Did they have flaws? Yes, absolutely. All of us fall short. But could I count on them? Could I count on them without question and without hesitation? 100%. Through all the horror and the fear and the pressure, there were always some guys that I knew without a shred of doubt 
would stand beside me and hold the line no matter what. They would never let me down. Ever. And as fate would have it, I'm lucky enough to have one of those few men that I knew I could always count on no matter what here with me tonight. He's done more for me and for the teams and for our great nation than the world is ever going to know. His name is Mike Sorelli. He's a former recon Marine, a very recently retired SEAL officer, and he's someone that's never let me down. So Mike, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for coming on, brother. Hey, Jocko, happy to be here, Neko. Thank you for having me. So, you retired how long ago? March 1st. March 1st. And so no one knows anything about you, which is the way it is. And um, so let's get to know a little bit about you, starting with the beginning. Let's start in NorCal. (laughs) NorCal. That's where you were born, right? In NorCal, uh, Palo Alto, California, uh, just about 30 minutes south of San Francisco. Entire family born and raised in San Francisco. They're all still back there. Uh, except for my brother, uh-huh. Whitefish, Montana. But uh, you, you know what? N- nothing to really lack in, in terms of growing up. I had a, had a great uh, family. Um, you know, sometimes I describe growing up in this hou- the Sorelli household as uh, being in 1960s, 1950s uh, Germany, <laughs> Berlin, <laughs> except I was on the, uh, the wrong side of the wall. <laughs> no, I had, had a, you know, grew up in a very Catholic family, loving parents, very, uh, very strict, mm-hmm. stern parents. But I got the, uh, the benefit of being the uh, the last child, and by that you know that point, I they'd, have an older brother and sister. They'd worn down the. Yeah. They'd worn down your parents a little bit. They'd worn down my parents a little bit, and so I got away with uh, bloody murder <laughs> to a point. Um, but you know, standard, uh, you know, upbringing of a seal. Uh, I had my share of uh, <laughs> uh, of trouble uh, that I caused, and uh, that's probably why I, went, why I went the path that I, I went. At what point did you? At what point did you realize that you were going to go in the military? So you know, I I, I can't you know pinpoint a, a specific moment, but everything was driving that you know driving me that way. Uh, I did have a grandfather uh, that was uh, first of the five hundred first. Oh wow! In World War Two, uh, actually, he had trained with uh, Patton out in um, oh it uh it uh yeah the, the lake National out here. Training Center yes. That's so they actually trained at the uh, the lake. Oh, okay. Um, near uh, near Nyland. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, the, Salton Sea. Salton Sea. <laughs> and so he had actually hit uh, the very early part of uh, Africa, and then uh, came back to the uh, the states, uh, went airborne, and he was a quartermaster uh, for the first of the five hundred. I'm sorry, first of the five hundred first. Nonetheless, he still went through airborne training. And he would jump in with them, mm-hmm. and so he was actually a uh, third day of Normandy drop. Dang. And then uh, fought in the uh, the battle uh, of the bulge in the Black Forest, and so that humble confidence mm-hmm. that he never spoke about, and so my mom would naturally tell me stories, mm-hmm. and um, it wasn't until I became a Marine that he actually, you know, really revealed a lot of the stories from uh, from World War II, 
And then, you know, as he got older, it was it was the same stories. But I would sit there and listen for the 15th time as if it was the first time I was, you know, hearing it out, yeah. of, uh, out of respect. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to Dave Burke once again today. Good deal, Dave. And, yeah, good deal, Dave. And we were talking about reading about face. And uh, I was saying, hey, you know, when you read about the, the older I got, the more it meant to me. And there's a quote that, that from Musashi that I talked about on the podcast, which is, it's something like this, and I'm not going to get it perfectly right, but it's something like this. When you know the way, then you see the way in all things. So About Face is not a leadership book at all. But when you read it and you are thinking about leadership, it's just all about leadership. It's 100% about leadership. But it reminds me of what you're saying. Like when you're a, little, when you're a kid and you don't know the way yet and your grandfather could be telling you these stories and it sounds kind of cool or whatever, but compared to when you actually know and understand war and, and you, it's just a totally different story. And as a matter of fact, speaking of that, when you were running the Jotsi course, I was I came in and I was gonna do like the brief that I would do to the Jotsi course and you, you know you were there it was like the tenth time you were gonna watch it and I was like hey are you gonna hang out and watch this or are you just gonna leave and go do like work out or something and you're like no I'm, I'm, I'm gonna stick around and I was like well, why are you for what and you're like I learned something new every time I was like dang <laughs> so that's pretty uh I definitely when you get older you can appreciate some of these things from um, when you know the way. Well, let's look at extreme ownership. I mean, this is why you hear people that are like, hey, I'm reading it for the seventh time. Yeah. <laughs> because they, they will get 10 new things or their perspective has changed. That's the big And they pe- learn it. That's the part that I didn't account for. And I don't know who told me this. Somebody told me this. Like, it was someone that had come to multiple musters. And I said, well, you know, how'd you like this one? And all the musters are a little bit different. But the first three were not that different. The first three were the same, almost the same. And someone said, well, m- it's only been a year, but my perspective is totally different now because I've been promoted one time and I got different situations going on. So it's I'm seeing it differently. So that's that's another thing that happens as you get again older. Mm-hmm. So back to you, how did you pick the Marine Corps, or did the Marine Corps pick you? So <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of both, uh, out of options. No, hey, so you know, standard again, high school sports. Um, loved running, loved wrestling. Uh, the grades, not so much. <laughs> it wasn't for for a lack of uh, aptitude. Yeah. It was a lack of complete effort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, loved to party. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it didn't have to do uh, with parties or girls, uh, I wasn't involved. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so I actually was the only one in my high school class not to graduate. <laughs> yes. And uh, so you got that going for you. Yeah. Which is, which is <laughs> my mom is a, is a little Italian uh, woman, and uh, she you know she really is uh, the rock uh, of the family. And you have to know how to play her. My, yeah. my dad is just the disciplinarian. Yeah. You feared him. Yeah, uh, yeah you, you just feared him. Bottom yeah. line. But you're you know my mom was a nurturer and a disciplinarian. You just had to play both sides because yeah. once you put her on onto the disciplinary <laughs> side, you just had no safe. Uh, <laughs> Safe house whatsoever anywhere in the Sorelli household. Um, so they did, you know, my dad had served in Vietnam in the reserves. Uh-huh. He did not have to go to Vietnam because he had a very unique skill. He was very good at football. Uh-huh. And back in the day, he was stationed in Fort Polk, Louisiana. He got assigned to the football team. And wow. that's what he did in the uh, the Army. But very different Army. Wasn't a fan of the military. Just, you know, we, we, we were different in those regards, but we're, we're very much alike. Um, 
so I went off to the University of Colorado, Colorado Boulder. The uh, wait, how did you do this? If you didn't graduate high school, did you get your GED? Oh, no, so no, no, no. So I went went back for the summer school <laughs> uh, summer session <laughs> and, and finished the requirement. And uh, I had already been accepted into the University of Colorado oh, Boulder. That's good. This, you know, the, the early stage of my life is not just. Parents can't say there's a whole lot of pride there uh, <laughs> from the end of high school until about the first year of college. So uh, I did not pick up a ROTC and Naval ROTC scholarship at Boulder, but you can enroll as a, uh, a volunteer in hopes of picking up a scholarship. So I joined the Naval ROTC at University of Colorado Boulder and uh, shortly got kicked out um, just for getting in trouble. And I remember the the battalion midshipman commander mm-hmm. pulled me in for my mm-hmm. counseling, counseling. <laughs> and uh, said, you will never become a Navy SEAL. And um, Oh, so at that time you wanted to be in the SEAL teams? You, so I, w- I was going between the SEALs and, and Force Recon, and you know, lo and behold, we had this guy, Ben, I won't use his last name, who was a Force Recon Marine, uh-huh. uh, Fifth Force, at the University of Colorado Boulder as a mar- uh, MESET, okay. Marine Enlisted yeah, yeah. Commission Education Program yeah. uh, uh, Marine, and was just impressive built like a little tank uh everything about him articulate smart confident not the loudest guy in the room uh and so he sort of took me under his wings like hey don't worry about it um college is not going to work out for you this go around um why don't you do what you want to do and uh you know walked me down to the uh, the recruiting office in uh, boulder colorado signed up and when i signed up i came back to uh northern california for a few months while i was waiting for my uh my boot camp date uh enjoyed myself and then uh when it was time to go uh you know i sort of dropped the last minute information on my parents mom having a father that was in the military she accepted it pretty well Mm -hmm. and uh for my father he was uh he was not happy Mm -hmm. uh given his were you know everything is about our perceptions in life and his perception his experience with the army was not a favorable one and so he was livid and um, yeah, we had a few words, and he did not see me off to the airport. My brother and uh, my mother did. Um, and then fast forward to uh, to boot camp. Um, ben again had uh, had given me some good advice, like, "Hey, you can turn this around. In the Marine Corps, will give you every every opportunity to do that." And so I crushed it in boot camp. Graduated honor man out of like you know three hundred kids. And uh, on graduation day or the day prior. You know, the parents can come out and see you, and they line up the entire uh, recruit battalion, and lo and behold, who's in front carrying the guide on? Me. And that's the one time, you know, me and my father did not get along in high school because, again, not his fault. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you, you just see him doing this and shaking his head. And, you know, ever since that that, yeah. that time, my, my father and I see each other in a different light. We still clash <laughs> uh, because we were so alike. Yeah. But uh, we, we, you know, we've got a common understanding, and uh, he, he's just a good man. My parents are good folks. Like yeah. I couldn't, I, you know, I was never in want for love, for discipline, um, and, and this really household was a great household. It's weird too because as a parent, you're always thinking if you try and impose too much on your kids, you're just gonna you're just gonna push them in the other direction. You know what I'm saying? So. You know, for like for instance, your dad could have been like, "No, you're not joining," and you would have been so rebellious. You probably would have joined anyways and done. You know, then you would have just not gone along even more. But he had to just be like, "Okay, I'm not going to see you off, but I'll be there at graduation." <laughs> Dude, I'll, I'll put it to you this way: I love the Marine Corps, best run service 
albeit they're the smallest service, best run service in the U.S. military. You, you just can't debate that. Um, and, and I think what he saw was he sent a boy off, and like within three months, he saw yeah. uh, the beginning of a man. Yeah, and, the, and I mean, the, he loved it. He took it on wholesale. He loved it so much that he would pass by a recruiting office. He'd stop, get some donuts, <laughs> and bring him into the office and, and, and shake their hands. I mean, he he loved the military at this point. He saw it from a different. I mean, yeah. we literally changed his experience in Vietnam to a favorable one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The Marine Corps has really just mastered that whole thing of taking a recruit and turning him into a Marine. They, they are really good at that. They are really good. It's awesome. Uh, the thing I always said about the, the Marine Corps is there's, you know in the SEAL teams you'll get these totally great guys at the high end of the spectrum and you'll get bat, much worse guys at the lower end of the spectrum. The Marine Corps, it just keeps it all in a t- much tighter group. Like you know what you're getting. It's gonna be, it's gonna be a Marine. And it's going to be good to go. You're talking about like their minute of angle. Yeah, yeah, their yeah. minute of angle is much. It's a yes. tight shot group. The SEAL teams, you know, we get some, we get some awesome guys for sure. But then you get a couple scattered rounds out there, <laughs> a couple stray rounds that are off paper. Don't don't worry about that little guy. Yeah. <laughs> Check. So so then, what what year was this? Now is this like 1998? It, it was it was 98, 98. So so glad I came in before nine eleven because I got to see the pre war military, uh, and then you know became what I call the the GWAT babies that were absolutely spoiled. And this sounds you know contradictory is spoiled yeah. by war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what what did you do? Would you what was your MOS? So went in as a uh, Jesus. I'm even forgetting it. O three eleven rifleman. Check, but. So when I was at the School of Infantry, these recon marines show up. And you can always tell the recon marines. They, they have the dual cool, the, yeah. the, the double trouble. And the, yeah, the double trouble. And the hair is a little longer, and they, they stand a little taller. And uh, so unbeknownst to me, they, they literally had to try out that, uh, that day. And so that was my opportunity to get into recon early. And uh, I did extremely well. Uh, finished first within that class. And they're like, okay, do you want to go recon? I said, yes. Absolutely. And so out of the School of Infantry, when I graduated from there, it was straight to the basic reconnaissance course, right next to Bud's. Wow. In Coronado uh, for three months. How many uh, guys get to go straight through that pipeline like that? So, you know, it ebbed and flowed. Uh Usually you had to do some infantry time before you tried out. But I think, uh, you know, similar to to the demands of uh, Uh post-9-11, when we started opening earlier, the Green Beret community started opening up the 18X program. Mm For guys straight off the street into the special forces, recon would occasionally do the same thing, and so very few. And I, I just happened to hit uh, at an opportune time, uh, past the screening, and, and I'll tell you what, BRC was tough, and, and I have nothing but respect for those guys. It's you know, it's not they don't have a hell week, mm-hmm. but it is uh, it is man town uh, in every respect. Yeah, no, I used to see those guys. Obviously, we see them all the time going through classes, and then so. And then you show up. Where'd you go? Where'd you go after that? So first recon battalion uh, at Camp Pendleton. Check. Um, and and it was it was quickly thrown into schools. It was awesome. So uh, got dive school right off the bat, which is the Marine Combatant Dive mm-hmm. Course in Panama City, Florida, which was, uh, I'll tell you what, and uh, most SEALs don't like to hear this, it was as tough as second phase, if not tougher. And even academically, uh, they, they dove in a lot deeper to the dive physics, uh-huh. the dive medicine. So you had guys getting dropped for uh, for academics. Mm-hmm. 
And then after that, it was shortly off to sniper school, which I was ill-prepared for, uh, loved. I remember my mom, I went back to San Francisco because uh, I had a weekend off, and, I, and you had to build your own ghillie suits. Mm-hmm. And I built the worst ghillie suit <laughs> that you probably have ever seen. Uh, I still have the thing in uh, storage. It looks like Chewbacca lying on the ground. Um, but past that school by the skin of my teeth. And uh, I think we started with 40 and we graduated 12, and it literally came down to the last stock. And uh, a guy named Brian from Idaho, who had been with a stay platoon mm-hmm. uh, in the Marine Corps, which is more or less a sniper platoon, and uh, literally helped me get in my last position and sacrificed himself because he didn't need to score a perfect oh, score on that man. run and, uh, and passed. Dang. Uh, but I made up for it in that, you know, the, the, the shooting, move. yeah, the shooting, <laughs> the shooting was not a problem. <clears throat> it was just stalking, uh, since I had no real preparatory work going mm-hmm. in and those guys had, it, it was tough. How was your patience level during stalking? Was it good? It was, uh, you know, it, it, it was decent. Uh, the problem was we, we went to sniper school in January in California, Oof. which is cold. Yeah. And so we were out there all the time, sometimes rain. And so, it, it, you know. The patience was was fine. It was just the pain mm-hmm. uh, of sitting there, um, which which you had to contend with. And then and then, did you go on deployment? No. So did a uh, entire workup, uh, and actually shifted over to, to another platoon because I, I was at first recon battalion, mm-hmm. and it was a company at the time, and we turned into a battalion when I was there. Mm-hmm. So I transferred from seven platoon to a new platoon and continued a, a workup, and uh, had a great officer. Um, Pulled me aside and he's like, "Hey, man, uh, I want to put you in for the MESEP program, which again is the Marine Enlisted Commissioning mm-hmm. Education Program. For the listeners, that's where they send an active duty Marine, usually a corporal, sergeant, or staff sergeant, to go back and get their college degree on the Marine Corps dime, and then come back as an officer. It's because you've shown some promise. What I say is, I'd only been in two alcohol-related incidents in the Marine Corps, and so." They said, hey, you're you officer material. <laughs> you were a front I'm runner. I'm joking. <laughs> but uh, so the, the officer put me in. I filled out the package and got selected as a corporal Dang. very early in my career. And so uh, when they asked me where I wanted to go, I wanted to go to the University of Texas. Did not get in because let's yeah. track back. They, they looked at the high, school, high school records. <laughs> they were like, uh, no. Yeah, <laughs> and so, uh, believe it or not, I had been to a wedding in Austin, one of my recon buddies, and loved the town. And uh, the same guy looked at me. He's like, hey, man, wh- wh- why don't you try Texas A&M? He's like, it's, it's like the next best thing. It's only about an uh, hour and a half outside of uh, Austin. I'm like, okay, all right. And, of course, I'm a corporal at the time. I don't have the money mm-hmm. to go visit Texas A&M Internet was not exactly booming at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I just submitted an application. Actually, some Marines that were there called me, and they made it sound like a great place. And so when I went out there, uh, drove out there with my three boxes of household goods, mm-hmm. and it is just a country town with 50,000 college students. And uh, it, it was a great opportunity, but College Station was not for me. And the war had kicked off, mm-hmm. and so I finished school in three years and uh, got out of there. And then how did you go from, at what point did you tell them you wanted to join the Navy? So, I, you know, going out there, I had about a 75% uh, had already made my decision that I wanted to switch over to the SEALs. Even if you looked at it from a time perspective, had I gone to TBS and then, you know, the officer infantry course, 
it would have taken me the same amount of time to get to a SEAL team. Mm-hmm. And so it just made common sense. I had worked with a few SEALs during the workups, mm-hmm. the MU workups uh, at First Recon Battalion. Uh, you know, they, they were older, statistically, more highly educated, more physically fit. And the biggest part, they were part of SOCOM mm-hmm. and they had the money. Mm-hmm. I was still carrying an M16A2 as a recon marine, yeah. a sniper. Yeah. Um, we just didn't have the money, we didn't have the gear. And so uh, you never see SEALs switch from the SEAL teams to recon, mm-hmm. but you see a lot of recon Marines switch over to SOCOM units. They either go SEAL, Green Beret, mm-hmm. and a lot of them went PJ, mm-hmm. which for the listeners is a uh, Air Force pararescue jumper. Um, so I did go to Marine OCS, and, and I got to tell you again, that was uh, a challenge. I lost, I think I went in around probably 185 and lost about 20 pounds that I didn't need to uh, to lose. And so that was a summer in Quantico, and I was impressed. And you talk about maintaining that standard, that, that quality spread that the Marine Corps does so well, uh, with, especially within their officer ranks. That's the reason. Yeah, yeah. How long is how long is Marine Corps OCS? Three months. And how did, if you, if you knew you wanted to go in the Navy, how come they sent you to Marine Corps OCS? So the MESEP program, you actually go to OCS after the or during the first summer oh, after your freshman it, year. Got it. You still come back as a sergeant. Yeah. I was a sergeant at that time. Uh, continue uh, towards your degree, and once you finish your degree, then you get your commission. You get commission. One year prior, and here's here's the funny thing. So one year prior to uh, graduating, I said, hey, uh, went to my Marine officer instructor who's a major, who's a prior enlisted guy himself, great guy. Uh, I'm like, hey, I think I want to go SEALs. He's like, okay, let's put a package in. Oh, I was like, awesome. hey, the military's going to get their pound of flesh from me either way. Yeah. Do what you want to do. Uh, the commanding officer was a Marine Colonel. Did not see it that way. <laughs> I was disloyal. So during you the process, have, you have the, betrayed the, the Marine Corps <laughs> pretty much. And, and I you know, literally hate you. <laughs> the major prepped me again. He's like, "Hey, just listen to what he has to say. Yeah. Nod your head and just step out of the room. I got gotcha. you." Yeah. And um, so <laughs> the inter-service transfer was almost immediately approved. Oh, it was awesome. it was that easy of a process. But then they told me I needed to uh, attend something called uh, Mini Buds mm-hmm. that summer of my junior year. Um, and, and so when I show up, you have about 35 midshipmen from Naval ROTC units, the Naval Academy, and then one sergeant in his Marine Charlies. And it is, you know, khakis, a khaki top with uh, uh, blue bottoms with a red stripe. And uh, I'm amongst 34 guys in white and I just stuck out and it was Gunny Highway. So Gunny Highway is in our course. And um, you know, I was still very much a sergeant. So they, they did love me towards the end because like they said, hey, we need this done. I would step up, yell, hey fellas, let's get this done. And um, the, the guy sort of rallied around me and uh, you know, lo and behold, at the end of that, I had a, a spot waiting for me when I uh, graduated. And it didn't hurt that uh, the the CEO of Buds was a former Marine himself. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's awesome. It's a good way to get that in there. The prior Marines that come in the teams are always got a little extra squared awayness inside them, <laughs> in their brain. And Buds, any factor of Buds? <laughs> Does anyone go through Buds and say it's a it's a non <laughs> non factor? What was the biggest factor you had? Patience. It was patience. <laughs> that's why I asked you about patience yeah. in sniper school. What were you impatient with? So, you know, in sniper school, I was still a new guy. Uh, um, oh, yeah, that's right. So, 
you know, stepping into uh, a community that I highly admired that I wanted to be a part of was the Easy Party. It was some of the instructors had a very they were they were, they were very artistic in getting under your skin. Yeah, oh yeah, they're <laughs> and, good. So what um, year is it now? Now when is it? Oh, is it post? Oh yeah, oh three. So it's it's game time. And in fact, made. I think you 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 were deployed right around that time. Yeah. Well, I was deployed in two thousand three, two thousand four. My yep. first deployment to Iraq. Yeah. Because your counterpart, your your sister platoon commander, visited me. Oh, okay. In, in Buds. Cool. And it was right before you guys went. Oh, right on. And um, which I have a funny story about uh, Jatsi <laughs> when you came to speak to us. <laughs> um, so you know, the, you, just the the patience of going through the process. I came to again. speak to you, and you went through Jatsi. You did. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I I did not remember that. That's weird. Um. So you you had you were a little bit impatient of going through buds like basically you're saying oh man I'm ready to get in the game and they're like okay take this sweep this grinder and do all this dumb stuff that you have to do yeah a hundred percent it's uh, when people ask me because people ask me all the time hey I'm 33 years old I want to go in the military do you think it's a good idea I'm always like here's the problem the problem is you're 34 years old there's some real benefits to that in that you're mature and you are smart and you have knowledge about the world here's the bad part you're mature you're smart you have knowledge about the world because when they're like hey we want you to do this completely ridiculous task that makes no sense whatsoever you're not gonna feel like doing it and you're gonna have to do it and that's gonna grade on you even more when I was 18 years old and I joined the Navy it literally didn't matter what they made me do I would like well like what you just said when you when you joined the Marine Corps and when when Ben said to you hey look you can you just just do what they tell you to do and and life's gonna be good you like I I didn't no one told me that but when I got to boot camp I was like oh I do what they tell me to do and life's gonna be good that's what's gonna happen so it's like oh you can fold my underwear whatever clean the toilets hey let's do this and that's a lot easier when you're 18 than it is when you're 34 a lot easier it is and, and you know it's not so much what they tell you to do they, they tell you what to do but they want to see if you perform mm. it's not that we're trying to create robots and, and you know a lot of people you have to demystify that uh, about the military, but buds is just a long process. And then while we're going through it, they're telling us stories about what you guys are doing overseas. Mm. Or, you know, we had one SEAL pass away in Afghanistan at that time. Someone received a Navy Cross a- in front of us. And the whole time, you want to be those guys. Not the medals or any of that, but you want to be the gladiator in the arena. Mm-hmm. And you know you have 12 more months of training before you can even show up to a SEAL team. <laughs> the other... The other big thing, and you knew this because you'd been in the Marine Corps, the other big thing that people don't understand is the fear that we all had that this thing was going to end and we weren't going to do anything. That was the biggest fear I had was oh, this war is going to happen. It's going to be over in, in three months and I won't have deployed and I'll have to do the rest of my Navy career never have go, never, never going into combat, which was the, na- the biggest nightmare I could imagine. Total nightmare. That, that would have been, it, it's the same for the guys that were in the Gulf War. You know that certain platoons got to go over there, yeah, and they sat behind thinking yeah. that they were going to backfill them, and the war was going to be a long war, and then it's over in what six days? Yeah, I had I had a master chief friend that was on the last plane to v- the last platoon going to Vietnam, and the pl- and the plane got shut down and they didn't go. It's like a total nightmare for them, but it's hard for people to understand that mentality of how bad you want to go and. 
it's just the way it is, man. I, I wish there was some nice thing to say about it or some psychological way to explain it away. Like, hey, it's just, a, no, it's like, I, I'm just going to say the way it is. When you're young and you're in the military, you want to go to war. That's all there is to it. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, that's the way it is. But you believe. You believe in what you are doing. There's a sense of purpose. And, and, and again, it is counterintuitive that anyone would want to go to combat. I'm super stoked that you feel that way. I'm gonna here to tell you and admit to you that like I just wanted to go to war. <laughs> I just wanted to go to war. I actually another old Vietnam guy, he when he left SEAL Team One, he goes he goes, I joined the Navy in nineteen seventy so I could kill people for my country. And I was like, Oh yeah, I know what he's talking about. <laughs> in, in the, you know, the funny thing is you start to love it. You start to love oh, war. Oh yeah, and, and, well, and yeah. that's yeah. not a bad thing. You know, funny enough, I, I took a job went right when I retired at Texas A&M System. I was the director of uh, veteran services for all twelve campuses. But uh, there was this sort of old hen that uh, a mother hen that that just didn't really like me. And you know, she, she leans in. And she's like, "What is the worst part about war?" And uh, I look at her and say. That it has to end, <laughs> and just walked right off. You and you could hear the. <gasps> it's it's the classic line that they got right in Apocalypse Now is when Colonel Kilgore's like, he just he's distraught. He's talking about napalm in the morning, and that smell, that gasoline smell, the whole hill smelled like victory. And someday this war is going to end, and that's the worst thing he can think of, because. Hey man, he's a battalion commander of the cavalry unit in Vietnam. He's God. He's on top of the world. He's on top of the world. There's nothing more important in the world to him, ever. He can't even imagine it, and he's depressed that someday the war is going to end. <sighs> Fired up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so where were we? So you get done with buds. Buds, the biggest thing. You, uh, people always ask about the physical part of buds. You're in good shape. No factor. Yes, is it physically exhausting? Of course. Yeah, what, what do you, want you get tired. Yeah. But you know what it is also is uh, it's, an, it's an opportunity to actually start cementing your reputation. Yeah. And again, I was very much still a sergeant, and the instructors loved me because I would rally the boys. Even, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what I like to call a uh, healthy appetite uh, or healthy disrespect for authority mm-hmm. yeah, is yeah. to get the, the guys fired up yeah. against them a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And they get paid a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. you'd see them smirking and be like, it's all right, worth, it's, it's worth yeah, the price. Yeah. Yeah. So, and again, you know, uh, got the fire in the gut. The, the boys love me. They, they they rallied around me. You're uh, an I, officer? You got the fire in the gut? Yeah. I haven't heard that too much. Have you heard that too much? You know, I don't know. I haven't heard that too much. I A caveat, or what is it called? I don't forget what it's called, but... I had one of my buddies text me the day, oh, you're, you're making it sound like Bud's is su- super easy. It's not easy. And I was like, no, 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 let me let me correct myself. I'm not saying Bud's is easy. Like you said, Bud's is hard. It's, it's physically hard. The hardest thing to me, I think physically, is that it goes on day after day after day after day after day. And so when you're doing a four mile timed run, which should be pretty easy, because in first phase, you've got 32 minutes to do that. That's a long, that's a slow pace. Even for a grown man, that's a slow pace. Even for a big guy, that's a slow pace. But when you've done whatever, 8,000 eight-count bodybuilders the day before, <laughs> and then you got up at 3 in the morning and you did 8 million flutter kicks, and then you go out and get on the beach and you do a timed run in soft sand with boots on, it, it's not easy. <laughs> and that's what, that's what trips people up, I think, the grind. You, the one thing, too, for me that was a, was a driver is uh, there was no way that I was going to disrespect the Marine Reconnaissance community. <laughs> no way. <laughs> there are some warriors 
I mean, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of warriors within that community, and so that was always over my head. No way was I yeah. going to ring that yeah, bell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that would just be a complete, uh, you know, a complete utter lack of respect for the community it, I came from. The quitting in buds is really hard to understand, and I I had like a I had like a midlife crisis several months ago about because some people that I knew about and that I talked to had quit, and and like I didn't get it. And and there's been guys from the Marine Corps that have gone through th- That I've been like, oh, that's awesome. And then they quit and yes. you're, you're thinking to yourself How does this even happen? So I'm a hundred percent on board with the uh, Thought that no one knows who's gonna make it through no one knows like you can't say this guy's gonna make it He's a stud or this person's not gonna make it because they're weak. You you literally don't know now could I bat 60% maybe 70% maybe but there's no way you could make a sure thing There's not one person in the world that you could say this guy is going to make it through buds hundred percent There's no person in the world you can say that about that I've that I know of the most humbling lesson I learned in buds and, and you're, you're, you're gonna find this funny was I went through buds with a guy named Ryan Job sound familiar mm-hmm. <laughs> and again remember I'm a I, I was a really fired up uh, Marine sergeant that just pinned on bars and uh, from judging a book by its cover, you look at Ryan, and you're like, you're not going to make it. Everything was sloppy about him. Mm-hmm. And um, I even told him at one point, I'm like, hey, man, you're not going to make it. You should quit now. And uh, just to watch him and the instructor zeroed in on him, and the kid had no quit. Mm-hmm. And even at the end of Hell Week, having been beat more than anyone in that class, the instructors actually pulled him aside and they said, hey, you're good to go. Like, we've thrown everything at you in the kitchen sink and you stood strong. You're going to be a great seal. And, and I watched that and I'm like, <laughs> oh, man. Yep. I, who, who am I to judge who's going to make it and who's not? And that was a, that was a life lesson I still remember. And I, it wasn't until Ramadi that I, I apologized to Ryan. He, he sort of giggled. He's like, yeah, I know. He's like, you all thought I wasn't going to make it. Yeah, like you said, though, no, zero quit. Yeah. Zero quit. And and doesn't matter what you do to me, I'm going to be right here. So then you get done. You get done with buds. So I came and talked to your Jotsi class. What did I talk to you guys about? You so said you, uh, you and... Um, your task unit commander okay. came and talked about the deployment as a whole. Okay, awesome. But there's a, a, a narrow, it's on the second deck, the classroom for junior officer training course, uh, which I eventually took over for, for LAIF uh, later on. Uh, there's a narrow passageway, and uh, this task unit commander uh, for Jocko, and, and Jocko coming off his platoon commander tour, had this, uh, we're, we're standing like this, and they created a little lane. And as each of us walked through, Jocko would lean in and basically make you shimmy through and yeah. be like, what the hell is up with this guy? Yeah. Right off the bat, Seems we're like, about right, this way. guy is an a-hole. Like, screw this guy. Now you want us to listen to you? And I mean, naturally, hey, he's a physically intimidating dude, but like, you you really like, screw that guy, man. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I'm sorry, bro. <laughs> I always oh, had fun it, with new guys, though. It did. It didn't stop there, and we'll we'll, we'll get to the next <laughs> encounter. <laughs> and then you showed up. You went right to te- you went. You did you go right to team three after that? I did. Showed up in uh, November of two thousand four, and um, there was three slots open for JOs immediately, and uh, they went to uh, all Naval Academy guys. Uh, and so. I got stuck in ops. 
uh, working with a great guy um, right on. That, that we both know. Yeah. And I absolutely looked out for me and so sent me to uh, free fall right away. And then when I finished that up, he's like, hey, do you want to go join the boys overseas? Because Team 3 was deployed yeah. at the time. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so was, you know, shortly after uh, December, found myself on a, uh, a plane and arrived in Baghdad and balling. I, I was finally in the yeah. game. Yeah. I was there. That's half the battle. Yeah. And I loved it. Yeah. And then what were you doing? Just tagging along with the boys? So, yes. Or did they give you some strange job description, but it just meant hang out and wait to go on office? <laughs> <laughs> so working in the uh, the jock, uh, naturally, as an assistant uh, operations officer. Uh-huh. But uh, there was another SEAL team that, that was there. Remember, they were dual, dual yeah, deployed yeah, yeah, alongside yeah. SEAL Team 3. And um, fell in with the, uh, the platoon commander yeah. uh, quickly. And he's like, hey, jump on the Humvees. You're a 50 cal gunner. Yep. Uh, when we go out, just watch us do our thing. Uh, you know, set up a cordon uh, with, with the vehicles, yeah. and, and slowly learn. And so every time they would go out, I would jump in the the uh, the Humvee as a fifty cal gunner, and uh, I was in heaven. Yeah, I was in absolute <laughs> heaven. Get any better? You're yeah. just freaking stoked. Yeah, and then you came back. So you come home from that deployment, and then you get put into. Is, you, is that is it? The, did you get a platoon the next time, or you like? Did you get stuck being ops again in that task unit? So I get, yeah, I got stuck. This is like good deals for good seals. Yeah. I uh, got stuck as TU Charlie uh, Opso. Oh, get some. And so, again, the other slots were full. Uh, I'd have to wait for an AYC. It would mean I still get to deploy. I actually, yeah. it's a double benefit when you look at it at the end of the day. Yeah. I actually get two deployments. Those guys, after they're done with their assistant platoon commander yeah, tour, step have up. to go elsewhere. And so it actually was a blessing in, uh, in disguise. And then... Okay, so you're in that task unit, and interestingly, that task unit is in the book Extreme Ownership in a very short passage, and I was looking at it to think about what what we said about it, but there was a task unit at SEAL Team 3 at the time, and the task unit commander and one of the platoon commanders, they didn't get along, they had issues with each other, and they couldn't they couldn't get, they couldn't put it aside, they just couldn't put it aside, and even the commanding officer Again, this is in the book and the commanding officer said hey look. I'll tell you what I know you two have issues Because they had both come to him separately and I'm probably screwing up the story But it was something like this they both came to him and said hey look I can't work with this guy and the other guy says I can't work with this guy and he brings them together and says look It's Friday by Monday come in here and tell me how you two are gonna work together Understand and they're like yeah, I got it sir. They come in Monday and what do they say? I can't work with him I can't work with him and he goes okay you guys can't work together guess what you're fired and he fired both of them which was a which was a great move actually I, I I think it was a good move you know if you've got two people that can't figure out how to work together under the threat of being fired from your job that's a real problem especially if you can't substantiate it I mean if you can't go in there and say listen here's the reasons why I can't work with this guy it's this this and this because obviously they had the opportunity to do that and there's situations where you could say look I can't work with this guy he's immoral or he's unethical or he treats everyone horribly and I can't sit there and watch this happen like there's reasonable arguments that you could make where you literally can't work with someone but when you can't even substantiate an argument as to why you can't work with someone and then you get told okay I get it and I don't hear any real reasons so you two go figure it out and you come back and say no it's not happening seems to me like a good move is okay neither one of these guys I trust to go overseas and form relationships with other military units and foreign military units and do their job properly and he fired them both you somehow they said okay you know what collateral damage we're gonna take Sorelli and we're gonna move him 
into Task Unit Bruiser. That's what they did. And I was stoked because I wanted more people always, you know, because you get another 50 cal gunner, you get another officer, you get another shooter, you get a, it's another person. It's, a, it's awesome. And I was stoked to have you coming on board. And there was, there was like a little bit of, dr- I mean, there was, there was drama because, you know, inside, inside Bruiser, it was like no drama. Like we don't, we don't play drama. Like we, we solve problems, we keep our mouth shut, we do what we're supposed to do. We, if we got problems, we figure them out, we straighten them out, and we move on. And th- we could see all this drama unfolding in that other task unit, which is, is not cool. I mean, you don't like seeing that at a SEAL team. You want the whole SEAL team to be kick ass. And so you see a, a task unit that's in turmoil. It's like not fun to watch, especially because I knew, I basically knew every player in there. I knew every one of those guys. And you watch them f- just, falling apart and eagles are flaring up and it's just a nightmare man it was a nightmare and anyways you get b- basically out of that whole catastrophe out comes mike sorelli into tasking a bruiser and <laughs> the best <laughs> worst deal <laughs> i've ever been dealt best worst deal i've ever been dealt so you check in and i remember i i, I was thinking to myself okay I, I didn't know you uh i've looked at your record i knew you were in the marine corps i like i knew that you were going to be squared away that was my that was my as much as you can predict, you know, I was thinking, okay, this guy was in the Marine Corps. This guy's gonna be awesome. You seem like you were serious and you want to do a good job, and and so I was. My assumption was, you're gonna kick ass. However, I had to be a little bit, you know, I had to do a little precautionary, <laughs> precautionary, take some precautionary measures to make sure that you understood where I was coming from. You know, I wanted to make sure you knew where I was coming from, while uh, having a little fun with me, <laughs> just a little, just yeah. just a smidge. Yeah. So that's why that's why so introducing you into the task bringing you in I wanted to let you know like hey this is where I'm at you know we don't have any drama here that's why so that's why we did the whole uh, the whole briefing so in the mechanical so in the mechanical room so at SEAL Team Three at the time there was no ceilings in any they were doing this big remodel <laughs> and there was no ceilings in any of the platoon spaces or task unit spaces there was all just there was a wall with no ceiling so you could hear everything that was being said. Mm. And so whenever I had something legitimate, like an issue to bring up with someone, and it was almost, it was, in fact, it wasn't even almost always, it was always my my JOs. It was either Leif or Seth or one of the other JOs, and I'd bring them in there, and I'd be like, hey, here's what's going on. Because in the mechanical room, there's like a loud noise, and no one can hear you, and that's the only yeah, room that still had a ceiling. For privacy. For kind. privacy. Yeah, it was like the cone of silence. Yeah, It was yeah. the cone of silence. <laughs> so whenever someone was doing something that I really need to tighten up, someone was getting out of line, and I really needed to talk to them on, on the secret level. Yeah, yeah. And by secret, I mean, I didn't want anyone gossiping about what I was about to say. <laughs> so I'd bring him in the mechanical room yeah. and and tell him what was up. And so that's what I that's how I welcomed Mike into the task unit. Go ahead. <laughs> For, now you can what get happened? your perspective. What happened? What happened? What happened? So yeah, having come out of an incident where I was wrapped up in a lot, a little bit of drama and, and being shifted. Well, ju- that incident though, you were just sort of like in that group, or or were you you know? So or, since I was close, the operations officer, which is. Basically, the, the the guy that handles the uh, the day to day affairs for yeah. the, the troop commander, I was naturally close to him. And, and if you want to step back to that task unit, because it was one of the uh, again many great leadership lessons across the course of my career. Uh, for a new guy watching that in the SEAL teams, <sighs> it was it, it, you know I, I was questioning maybe this community is not for me. Yeah. If this is the norm, because that this is my first experience, yeah. so this means this is normal to me. Um, it just seemed like backstabbing and, and egos. Uh, one of the platoons, they performed. 
and, and they stayed out of the drama for the most part. But between this platoon commander and the, and the task unit commander, it was from day one. It was just like watching a train derail. You just saw it coming. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the boss laid down the rule and they come back on Monday morning and paint him into a corner, I don't know what they expected. Yeah, yeah. And they both got fired, mm-hmm. and, it, and it both affected their career. But it was a, it was, you know, I actually, I can say as a, as a new guy, it was a great thing to see in retrospect because mm-hmm. you learn what not to do. Yeah. Um, but when I uh, was told to report into to Jocko, you know, I'm, I'm not in the best of uh, uh, of spirits. Sure. And uh, <laughs> knocking the door to, to task unit bruiser and say, hey, uh, Mike Shirelli, Jocko, uh, I'm here to report in. And he said, Roger, come with me. And he had a sheet of paper in his hand. <laughs> Principal's and, um, office. Yeah, I'm like, well, what's going on here? And so I follow him into. Everyone knows what the mechanical room is, but nobody goes in. Only and me. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you just want to picture like cogs turning. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, just like it's them, loud. There's yeah. steam coming yeah. out. And, Nightmare on Elm Street. That's where Freddy Krueger yeah. did yeah, most of his hey, work. You actually told me to pop two, and um, so I pop two, and you basically lay down the law of, hey, I heard what ha- what happens. You have clean slate here, but. Do not bring drama into my task unit. Here's your counseling sheet. You've been formally counseled and uh, pretty much left the room. And I think I sat in the room for maybe like 30 seconds to a minute. Don't by yourself. And I'm just girl. staring at the wall like, what the? <laughs> like, I, my, my, my career in the SEAL teams is going to be uh, extremely short. I'm, just, I'm getting it from all directions. And, and what he did was you lay down the law. Yeah. And, and I understood there was just one thing to do at that, that point. And that was just perform. Yeah, it was perform. Yeah, the other backstory here is is that the platoon that you're talking about that performed well inside that task unit, the platoon chief in that, because he was he was one of my good friends from way back, and because the, there's all this stray voltage going around about whose fault this was, and he came up to me and he goes, "Hey, you're getting Sorelli," and I was like, "Yeah," and he goes, "He's fucking good to go," and I was like, "Check," and that's like literally all I needed to hear because when he told me that, I knew like. He's like I respect his opinion, and so I actually knew you were going to be good to go a little bit stronger than I than I uh, gave note to. <laughs> no, no, he was uh, in terms of first people you meet in the SEAL teams was absolutely welcoming to every new guy. Mm-hmm. No hazing whatsoever. You can perform as a new guy. You're a part of this platoon. You have a voice. And uh, once he found out because he's a sniper, found out uh, I was a sniper in the Marine Corps. He's like, go. Hey, hey, I'm, I'm making a call to the army right now. Go check out a suite of guns. And I was shocked. Mm. And, you know, I trained up uh, as a sniper, as an officer for the, the entire workup. And it was because of that one guy who welcomed me with open arms. And, and you know, despite his, his long history in the teams, I mean, no ego yeah. whatsoever. He's humble, awesome guy. So you giving him that paper, the formal counseling, Bro. that's like a – isn't that something you normally do if you get in trouble? So I'm officially yeah, scolding yeah, 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 yeah. you or reprimanding. So you just did it to, to make it. a straight up straight impression, like, "Hey, you're and, in trouble." And by the way, I probably wrote in my entire naval career less than five. I might have written three, maybe. So he didn't even do anything. Yeah, I know. I, I know. I had to give one to Leif one time. Like my, my, uh, <laughs> I Leif, Leif, Leif did something and. The XO was like, you need to write him up. And I was like, oh, definitely, sir. And so I wrote him up and, and I shredded it later or whatever. You know, it's like not. But there's a very few times that I actually did that. But again, we were getting you late. It was pretty late. We were going on deployment soon. And so I was like, okay, let's let's get some. 
got to set the you know set the expectations yeah, out man. there in the front. You know, that we're not playing around. And then we go on deployment. We go to Ramadi. We well, we guess before we did that, we did Sirdex and all that kind of the last little bit of training, and then we went on deployment to Ramadi. No, I did not. I joined you after Sirdex. I literally joined you three weeks before we deployed. Good God. So I was that fresh to task you in a bruiser. No relationships uh, with a few guys that I'd gone to, uh, to Bud's with. Actually, so remember, Mark Lee and I mm-hmm. transferred over the same yeah, time. Yeah. No. yeah. That was after Sirdex? Wow. Are you sure? Mark might have been before. I was after. Okay. Yeah, I think Mark was before. Yeah, yeah. Cause, oh, that's right. Because everything fell apart in Sirdex for you guys. But your Sirdex was before ours. That's right. It was, we it was we, we come back from Panama. Yeah. That's when the uh, proverbial uh, shit hit the fan within that task unit. So then, Jay, we're getting ready to go to Ramadi, and what what you, you you came you became what did you become like like because I had a guy that was the the task unit ops. Did I make you task unit assistant ops? <laughs> <laughs> Constantly demoted. <laughs> that was the beginning of my SEAL career. <laughs> Uh, I was who I was the AOPS, um, but quickly became the. Uh, let me uh, let me tell you something. This is a this is a great a great point because all that like basically you know what that is really it's like a test. Like mm-hmm. hey, I'm gonna write you up. Let's see what your attitude is. Your yeah. attitude is you know what his attitude was like. Roger, I'm no drama. Don't worry about it. Then it's like okay, you're gonna work for this other guy that's probably l- lower in rank than you that has been in the military for a year, and you're gonna work for him. How do you how do you take that? And you know what Mike's attitude is like. Roger that. I'm here to work. Those things, like when you when those things happen, because people ask me this that kind of question all the time. Well, you know, someone else got promoted, or someone else got this. It's like, what do you do? Oh, you work hard. That's what, and that's exactly what you did. And you know, it took a matter of days before I was thinking, okay, he's. Oh, I'll give him a little bit more. I'll give him a little bit more. I'll give him a little bit more. And then very shortly thereafter, it's like, okay, guess what? You are ops now. Which it's not like this huge great job, but it's. It's it's pretty significant once we're on the ground in Ramadi. There's a lot of responsibility there. I had to count on you for a lot of stuff. And because you were freaking squared away and we're like, okay, Roger that. No attitude. No, Never did you, like, I gave you, and then we got overseas. I remember I gave you the worst job, which was I sent you to the TG, right? So the TG, for those of you that don't know too much about the military, there's a there's a headquarters above the task unit, which is called it's the SEAL team. But when you're on deployment, it's called the task group, and they have all kinds of administrative stuff that they got to handle. And we 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 had a great team with great support from our head shed, but they needed people to work. They need people to drive paperwork is basically what they needed, and so they needed an officer to go over there for thirty days for 30 days and get you know work do all this paperwork and i had to submit an officer and i i I sent you and there's two reasons why i did it well number one the number one reason why i did it was because i knew that you'd get there and figure things out and help us grease the skids for everything that we were doing whereas if if i sent someone else they might not be able to pull that off as well and two because i knew when i get you back i could do something awesome with you like get you in the field which is what i did so yeah, if you're in those situations where you feel like you're you deserve better, yeah. Just be quiet, suck it up, do a good job, and if you're the, the other part that people get paranoid about is they think, "Well, they won't notice me." Yeah. They they think I I should tell Jocko how awesome I am. I should tell Jocko that I was in the Marine Corps. I should tell Jocko that I I'm a sniper. I should tell like, "Hey, I got a better idea. How about you just be humble and just work and if you do that, then Jocko says, oh, hey, 
man, this guy's squared away. I wonder why he's so squared away. Let me look at his record. Oh, he's in the Marine Corps. Oh, let me look at his record. Oh, he's he's a sniper. Oh, he was in recon. Oh, okay, I've got a pipe hitter here. Cool, I can use him, and he's humble on top of all that. As opposed to, hey, look at me. Because believe me, there's plenty of people that come in and they want to bow up and act like they're the baddest guy on the planet. It's like, that's a real problem. That's a real problem because they have a big ego. It, it was to the point where I, I knew I'd burn my personal capital. And so it, it was time to rebuild. And even before he sent me to the task group, uh, you know, running ops, uh, quickly it, it came apparent that the other guy that was ahead of me just wasn't going to cut the bill. But uh, Leif had asked me if I wanted to go out. And I'm like, yeah, man. And everything in me wanted to go out on a mission with him because these guys are already starting to kill, uh, you know, a lot of uh, combatants. But I had work to do mm-hmm. in terms of ops that Jocko had passed down. And I knew if I had went out, it wouldn't have gotten done. And you would have let me made that call. Yeah, yeah. You, you would have let me go, but I, you know I passed. Mm. And Leif, you know, we were talking about that yesterday. I was with Leif in uh, Texas, and he's like, "I remember that one thing, and we knew that was a sign that you were going to get your stuff done, and, and he actually made uh, the right call." Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, you he were, still brings that you, up today. You know what you were doing? You were looking out for the task unit instead of oh, looking yeah. out for yourself. Oh, yeah. That's what that is. Mm-hmm. You were looking out for the task unit instead of looking out for yourself. You were taking care of what your actual job was instead of taking care of yourself. And that's, again, for, for everyone that's wondering like how to act, that's how you act. You take care of the team before you take care of yourself. You stay humble. You don't think that you deserve more than you're going to get. When you get handed a shit sandwich, Take a bite, chew it, and put a smile on your face, and ask for another one, and make that one squared away too. And that's how that's how you're gonna get where you want to go. Which for you eventually meant going to join Delta Platoon. Awesome, best experience I've ever had. And again, with a uh, a platoon that is humble, and if there is a personification of that, that is JP Danell. Mm-hmm. And those guys welcomed me with open arms, and I was taken back by the uh, by the humility. They're just, they're sort of, you know, the way I described Delta Platoon is they were like the little guy. They were the little guy in Task Unit Bruiser um, in the sense that they were just quiet with what they did. It's just different personalities between Charlie and Delta. And you love both platoons, but they had a very different uh, style of leadership. Um, and, you know, I can't name any of the names because most of them are still on active duty, but um, it felt like home. And then being with Seth was educational given the experience they had gotten within those like two months that I wasn't there, two and a half, three months. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there was a a steep learning curve uh, after three months of combat for them and I'm stepping in because I had to like speed up to the, basically the speed of war Mm because they were already there. Yeah, and they they had a ton of experience at that point. I mean, it was was an insane amount of experience. The, 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 The first... At one point, they did 24 straight patrols into the Malab and got contacted every single time. And then one, they didn't get contacted. They were like way up in the northeast section. They didn't get contacted. And then the next time they went out, which was a day later, they were, were right back in it again. So the amount of experience that they had was just was was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. I remember, so I was briefing the Siege of Sodaf. And I, I've made that quote right there. And I was like, these guys have been in contact on their last 23 um their last 23 operations and the the talk watch officer comes walking in and he's like sir i was like yes and he goes i just want to let you know uh uh deck corregidor is in a in a tick right now and i was like roger that and i looked at the colonel i said make that 24 in a row (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was uh that was that was pretty awesome we used to when those big big wigs would come to visit us in ramadi we would 
<clears throat> we would we would attempt to make it all nice but what that looked like was so obviously wretched <laughs> that like we would we would say hey you know if we've we've got we'd we'd lay out the uh, the MRE coffee for them so like hey if you want a cup of coffee here's the MRE coffee <laughs> we and we'd make it like we were doing our best to give them like the best treatment but like the treatment that you're gonna get just sucks because we're out here in the middle of nowhere yep. and the supply chain's not as good as it could be and hey if you want hey we, we really want you to have coffee if you have it so here's some MRE coffee you can mix it up here yeah, yeah. get some <laughs> and then when they left we cleared out the uh, supply closet and put the uh, coffee machines back up you know, the, uh, the the funny thing is um, you talked about the task group and during my time there mm-hmm. is uh, for those big wigs that come in is it was such a deviation from what soft was doing in Iraq prior to that and, and you know I like to you know use Colonel McFarlane who you need to have on this show yeah, as soon as possible he's retired now uh, Lieutenant General uh, former commander of the uh, 1-1 one, one, uh, brigade combat team is that he realized we weren't winning we are not winning and, and to, to continue operations as we have been doing is the wrong call and things need to change and even at the task group uh loved the commander over us uh because it was a deviation from mm-hmm. what every other seal team had done you could see him struggling yeah. with whether it was the right call and i remember a few times he called me in um to ask my opinion about what was going on but he wasn't really looking for an answer he was using me just as a springboard for his own thought process mm-hmm. and so i would talk very little and he would just sort of keep on talking and it i mean he had a very solid uh, sort of thought process along the lines of how he justified it. And ultimately, you know, he looked out for you and the rest of the task units. Yeah, uh, they, and they allowed us to look out for all the conventional forces that we were working with. Exactly. Right? The, the 1-1 AD and the 1st, the 506, and the 137 and the 38 Marines and all those guys that were on the ground with us there who we were able to help out as much as as much as possible only because we got clearance to do those operations which as you said was a was outside the norm outside the norm daytime operations staying out in the city supporting conventional forces which freaks some people out like why would you be supporting them they should be supporting you it's like well no they've got whatever a thousand soldiers and they're taking down a giant part of the city and we can help protect them so we are a supporting element but it's going to be it's going to have big impact so it was uh it was awesome. So when you got when you got out to Corregidor with the first of the five oh six, how awesome is first of the five oh or how awesome is first of the five oh six? The first of the five oh six from the top down were hardcore warriors. Yeah. It, some of the strongest leadership. So now uh, Major General uh, Ron Mc, uh, I'm sorry, Ron uh, Clark was the battalion commander at the time, the lieutenant colonel. Um, Dave Womack. I mean, I've never seen in my 20 years a stronger, uh, soft conventional force relationship other than Ramadi. I mean, it was a textbook case of unity of effort. Nobody worked for the other, but they all worked in unity towards the same uh, end end state. And it was beautiful. And uh, Ron Clark... Of course, you know, Seth and all the boys had set that relationship up. They had done a wonderful job. And um, the fact that, you know, I got out there before he bestowed the uh, first of the 506 spade on them. And, he, you know, I, I was there when it got bestowed upon us. Uh, it just, I mean, you know, I, I need to qualify this. You know, 
getting the trident was one of the biggest things, uh, one of the biggest accomplishments in my life. But the, it was just like a different sense of pride mm-hmm. that almost rates up there that this badass lieutenant colonel that that had been, uh, you know, in the suck for so long, uh, bestowed a infamous, you know, uh, symbol on our shoulders and said, "Hey, you wear this in combat." And that was, I mean, they, they, there's very few words to describe how that felt. Yeah, that was, um, like you said, the, the relationship between between everyone, between us, between everyone at the 1-1 AD. It was just freaking awesome. And I don't know if we'll ever be able to capture that and describe it, um, but man, it was it was awesome. And, and what they did for us, I mean, we did whatever we could for them, and what they did for us, man, was just the, the sacrifices that they made and the, and the effort that they put forth to support what we were doing. It was, it was, it was awesome. It was just awesome. Talk about, um, just give like, hey, this is what we were doing, so people can hear from your perspective. Like, again, you know, you don't need to get into tactics that, but just, hey, just a general. This is what we were doing. We we were covering and moving with the first of the five or six. That's how I would put it. Yeah. We were covering and moving. Again, all in this in pursuit of the same goal is win Ramadi. And um, we could have stuck with the status quo with the, the nightly uh, direct action raids, but it just had a little impact compared to what the uh, the conventionals were doing. And they were going to go out. So we really utilized the skill set that was unique to the SEAL teams, and that was the sniper overwatch. And uh, you know those positions, those sniper positions, because we would, again, we defied sort of traditional tactics of those two to four guys that went out, maybe six guys in a sniper hide, and we went out in force. Yeah, fighting two, positions. Fighting positions, because shortly, you know, uh, after the first few kills from our uh, our snipers, um, it quickly turned into a battle position because they they can sort of triangulate mm-hmm. where you're at based off the the bodies lying on the ground, and, and they had become very good at it. But we would move out uh, ahead of the uh, frontline trace of the 506, set up a uh, sniper Overwatch, uh, mutually supporting sniper Overwatch, uh, to really. Uh, protect the uh, conventionals doing major clearances throughout the Malab district and it was highly successful yes did it mean we operated during the uh, the days sometimes it did uh, most often we would infiltrate at night prior to uh, you know use the advantage uh, of night to your to, to your unit uh, set up prior to the uh, the conventionals coming in, in the early morning and starting the uh, the clearance operations and then we'd either pull out during the day or stay until night um, just to uh, give yourself you know mitigate risk as best as possible but you know you cannot argue the numbers don't lie you cannot argue with the numbers that the sig acts were going down enemy combatants were you know killed were were, were stacking up and, and slowly you know taking one bite at a time of that elephant we, we moved further and further into central ramadi which was enemy held territory uh up until 2006 mm-hmm mm-hmm and then from the other side, Charlie Platoon was coming in from the from the western side of Ramadi, and it was like eventually we just all met, the met in the middle <laughs> and called it good. So when you got over to Corregidor, I mean, obviously you're working for Stoner when you first show up there. How was that? Stoner's great. Stoner is a very, uh, I, I don't know if the word eclectic, is is a good way to describe him. So for the audience, I mean, Seth Stone is a, is a Naval Academy graduate, highly intelligent, and you knew it. He, the guy almost had a photographic memory. Ended up, uh, you know, getting his um, his master's from Princeton. So clearly, the, the guy is intelligent. 
um, what what do you stand about six two six three? Yeah, something like that. He was he was a big dude. He was overly aggressive. Um, sort of had some extra tissue above his uh, his eyebrows that sort of made him look like a uh, a caveman. Um, but Stoner had a reputation of of being you know just that aggressive, and and that's what was needed in that position. But he wasn't reckless, and let, let me say that he was he was very methodical and diligent about most of the decisions he made. And um, you know, for any leader, that the burden of command is is a lonely place. You're tasking commander, you know, even though you're close with Leif and Jocko, or Leif and uh, and Seth, you're you're also alone. And for Seth out there, all by himself, because you know, um, Andrew had taken off, mm-hmm. he was by himself and he really had nobody to to commensurate. And so I think uh, when I get out there, you know, he was relieved to, to have a an officer that was a. A, you know, a little more aggressive, um, and, and confided uh, in me. And so I went everywhere with Seth, every meeting for the first of the five oh six. Um, I think he was, in a sense, relieved. You know, one of my strengths, and, and, and it sucks to say this, was I was actually a very good planner, a very good planner. You know, I, I took a lot of pride in the fact that I was a sniper, and so I, I could do a lot of analysis, mission analysis, going in, mitigate risk, and then I was very good at knocking out the products. Uh, almost to my own demise, and, and I'll get to that. It's a funny story. But uh, Seth knew he could rely on me for the little things to get that done, to clear the way for him to focus on the more strategic picture when he had the battle of money. And so, um, you know, because I respected him for what he had done up to that point, like very much in a sense as a young SEAL, I was trying to earn his respect as well. And, and I think I did that towards the end, is he knew he could rely on me. Um and I think quickly out in the field, I proved my worth. Um, well, to remember, I'm an officer with a sniper rifle now, and so I'm finally in the game as well. Um, but we grew extremely, extremely close to the point where he started to bounce off, you know, bounce uh, matters off me for for my opinion before he weighed weighed in with, with some final decisions. Um, and he became a brother, quite frankly. And um, you know, when the, the the deployment was over. You know, led the way and, and making sure that he was sent off out of Delta Platoon in, in a fine fashion. You know, we got him a uh, um, forgetting the pistol, but it was a, it was a nice pistol. It was like a two thousand dollar pistol. Uh, and the boys were happy to chip in, so we we made sure that we sent Seth off with as much love as he showed the uh, the boys. And let me let me finish. You know, with Seth in that regard, he loved loved the guys. He would hold them accountable by all means. You know, he was close with the guys. But it did not get in the way of him making a decision, a right decision. Not what was best for the guys, but what was right for the guys. And he would make those hard decisions. And he didn't mind being unpopular if he did. Well, yeah, I owe... um At some point, I'll be talking a lot about him. Not now. So, now we're almost done with deployment. And, uh, 
you guys had a matter of I don't know what to call it in terms of number of missions left might be zero might be one might be two but it was almost time for everyone to start packing up and and heading home and that didn't mean that the first the 506 was going home because they weren't didn't mean the 118 was going home because they weren't didn't mean that they were going to stop doing it operations because they weren't it didn't mean that the enemy wasn't going to stop trying to kill Americans and so that meant that we couldn't stop doing what we had to do until the next seal team came in to relieve us and take our place so there was no there was no stopping there was no stopping until it was time to go home um, close as we were and and I remember consciously I said to myself I'm not gonna say hey this day we'll do our last mission because I think that's like uh, uh, call me superstitious but that to me is like a bad luck thing like hey okay guys this is the last mission and even in my own mind I said okay well we'll see how this one goes and if another mission comes up and so I, I never said to myself okay this day or this something we're gonna stop and I just knew that at some point we'd have enough of the of the new group over the new team would be here and we could say I could say okay you know what we're good now and we're going home and I didn't want to make that a con I didn't want to make that like a set date you know or a set time or a set number of missions I just said when when we're ready to be relieved we'll stop and we'll just stop and we'll, we'll, we'll pack up because I don't want guys out in the field thinking, hey, if I can just make it through this, because that's bad. Or I don't want guys in the field thinking, this is the last one I got to do, and I, I don't want that on anyone's mind, not even mine. And so I even tricked myself and just said, okay, we're going to keep going until we've got enough strength from the other team, and then we'll just stop that when, we, when that day comes. <sighs> so you guys kept operating, and everyone did, kept operating, kept going. And it was still, despite the significant impact there had been on the enemy, the enemy was still bringing it. And they were starting to get a little bit more desperate. And because we had really shut down a lot of their movement, so they were starting to really try and strike back significantly when they could. Uh, So basically almost every time that we went out into into Ramadi it was on at this point so September 29th 2006 you guys were doing another another operation in support of the first the 506th operation uh, Kentucky jumper in uh, the heart of the Malab district right by the uh, the stadium and um, we had inserted the uh, the night before again in an area we had operated multiple times before we we knew it like the back of our hand we had taken multiple positions in that area and on this specific one, we had taken a very dominant building. And when I say dominant, in terms of height of eyes, we, we had the height over any other building. And we were as diligent and methodical 
as we were with any other mission. Um, and uh, shortly after sunrise, we were engaged with the enemy. First of the 506 had come in to clear uh, several sectors of the Malab district. And uh, I think uh, by noon, uh, myself and another SEAL sniper had eliminated four guys. And um, you know, two had uh, sort of laid down to get some rest because we, we'd been up for close to 24 hours. And uh, Mikey and I uh, were holding security, and Mikey actually jumped on my uh, sniper rifle to get some uh, gun time. And uh, there was a seal to his left three feet, and I was three feet to his right. And, of course, one of the, one of the things as a, a young guy, and I realize now, is I just always pushed to the edge. And sometimes to take care of the guys, you have to take care of yourself. And I just didn't learn that early on. So I'd always try to stay awake and I'd try to sleep as uh, little as possible because I, I thought I had to be there, mm-hmm. you know, in case they needed me to make a decision. In, in reality, <clears throat> they didn't need me there to make a decision. They had it. And I was very replaceable. But when you're young, you, you don't always uh, realize that. And so I was in and out of sleep, you know, bobbing, sit, sitting on the ground. Mikey was sitting in a chair. And Mikey and I were in conversation basically about going home because we knew that was one of the last missions. And Mikey was excited because he was going to sniper school. I don't know if you remember that. You guys had lined that up. Um, he had been a machine gunner. Um, most of the, uh, well, all the deployment located right next to JP, who was the point man. And so that was Mikey's job was to overwatch, like St. Michael, overwatch JP in case they ran into enemy contact, they would be the first ones and Mikey would lay it down and Mikey had laid it down on multiple, multiple occasions before. Um, and then the other thing we were talking about uh, is he was dating a girl and we were talking about that. He, he knew I was excited because my daughter at the time was two years old and uh, you know I don't think I'd talked to my family much on that deployment because we were just so busy. And that that's sort of my style too is once I'm deployed mm-hmm. is... Uh, it was easier for me not to talk to my family because it was actually a distraction because it, it would it would mess with my mind. So you knew the mission was to get home to your family as quickly as possible. And, and the best way for me to do that, I'm not saying it was the right way, um, was to focus on what I needed to do. And it had 100% of my attention because I would not, you know, for the life of me, I would not allow one of my guys to get killed. But unfortunately, that's out of our control. It's war. And war's not clean. But uh, midday, um, you know, contact had died down. There was still movement out there. But uh, during the conversation, um, a, uh, a grenade had come over the roof. And um, again, I was in and out of sleep. But what really sort of snapped me to, and heart was racing right away, was Mikey snapped up. Remember, he was in a seat. The grenade had come over the roof and hit him in the chest. And bounced on the ground right in front of him. And now there's a, there's a lot of accounts out there that are wrong. Uh, I saw some uh, other SEAL speaking to a, uh, a crowd about this. You know that there was a uh, entrance to the rooftop that you know stairwell that would go down in the main uh, uh, main uh, building, and that wasn't true. We were actually like 15 meters uh, from that stairwell at the very edge of the roof, uh, closest to the street. When Mikey, I say Mikey had the greatest chance of getting in a way, is that all he had to do was dive in the other direction. And he'd most likely take a little shrapnel to the bottom of the feet and to the calves, but he would have gone home. And um, 
the thing that amazes me is, uh, you know, I'm not the uh, dullest tool in the shed, nor am I the sharpest, but the cognitive ability to assess what just did happen and the potential outcomes that if he chose self-preservation, which is not a wrong call, um, that the seal to his left and myself would have just ate in the grenade in the face completely just done. And the other seal to his left had kids as well. And, um, you know, you, you play this over in your head and trust me, I play it every day. And the first thing I think about when I wake up is, is Mikey and my kids. And the last thing I think about when I go to sleep is Mikey and my kids. And the, the reason I say that is there's a picture of, uh, of Mikey on my wall. And you know, it's that iconic picture of Mikey with Seth and another seal in the background with the yellow smoke. And he's carrying the, uh, uh, the machine gun. And, um, he yelled grenade. And then, um, yeah, he, he dove down on it and, um, not to add humor to the situation, but it's almost like that scene from, uh, snatch where, you know, the guys are frozen as, uh, as the shotgun's going off and they say, you sit there with a, a stupid look on your face. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I probably sat there with a stupid look on my face because one, we, you know, we're in the heat midday. We've been up for 24 hours. We're exhausted. And, um, it just happened so fast. And Mikey just took action in a matter of milliseconds. I mean, he assessed the situation. He knew the outcomes and he made the most selfless decision that anyone can ever make. There's no walking away from that. And I know there, there's there's some people that have walked away from jumping on a grenade, but those are, those are statistical anomalies. And um, it went off, and uh, by him smothering it, it funnelized the grenade blast to the sides towards uh, the seal to his left, to myself. And we almost had mere wounds, like through and throughs in, in both legs. And... You know, I'd never been that close to an explosive. We 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 are we work with explosives all all the time within the SEAL teams, but we are very uh, diligent about mitigating risk and the parameters that you have to be so far from the uh, the explosives. Um, the thing actually picked me up and flipped me over, and um, I just I could feel the pain. You know, people talk about. Uh, if you're shot or you're wounded, like you don't feel it, the adrenaline takes over. That ain't the case. It was immediate hot metal burning inside my legs or through and through wounds, just bleeding. So at the time, I, I didn't know if I had legs. I couldn't even, uh, I didn't even want to look. So I put my head, sort of forehead, on the uh, the dusty uh, rooftop and just took that big sort of bite, ate the pain, and... um uh, a third or a fourth seal was already moving towards our direction. Um, he had been affected by the blast as well. It didn't take any shrap metal, but I mean, it rattled all of us. And uh, looked at Mikey, whose head was turned towards me, and I yelled, Mikey, Mikey. And it was just lifeless. And um, so the, the, the next decision, was, the next thing that happened is we start to get lit up. By enemy, enemy machine gun fire. All chaos is breaking out. It's pure chaos. It's pure, uh, pure hell. 
the Iraqi soldiers on the roof with us, except for one who was close to us, but he was actually stricken and fair in the fetal position. They all ran off the roof and left us. So you've got one critically mortally wounded, two somewhat out of the fight that can't stand up, and then the third is dealing with uh, with Mikey. And so we were left pretty much, you could say, left to die by the Iraqi soldiers. And so I immediately went to my embitter to uh, to call for Seth, who was in a mutually supporting Overwatch position about 500 meters away. And um, the blast had knocked out my embitter. And so I'm calling. Finally, you know, I pulled the embitter out, and it's just clear screen. And I turned it back on, reset it. But the embitter has to go through a... It loads the program and it takes uh, a, a minute, mm-hmm. let's say tops. I didn't have a minute. And so still haven't looked at my legs. Uh, I'm looking around and I see the Iraqi soldier. And remember, his name is Mohanad, mm-hmm. actually spoke English. And uh, he's in the field position. I mean, he's just stricken by fair. And so I get up to run over to him. And as I stand up to run, I just go right down, literally on my face. The legs just wouldn't work. And, uh, again, sort of eat the pain, um, which glad to do, given what Mikey's going through right now and what he did, did for us. And I crawl over there, and the Iraqi soldiers used Motorola's. And Seth had Iraqis with him as well. And so uh, I actually uh, called out to Seth. Seth eventually got on that Motorola. Um, and then I said, hey, we're, we're hit bad. Mikey's down hard. We need you now. And they knew something was going on because the the fire's just, you know, hitting our building. Um, but you, as a commander, you have to wait. You know, you let 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 the situation develop, find out, let your let your uh, your assistant platoon commander call back and give you a sit rep of what's going on. He's probably on the radio trying to find out. Um, but I got back to him probably within a minute after the whole uh, grenade blast had gone off, and Seth said, "Hold on, we're coming." And um, so I crawl back to where Mikey's at, the, the four seals dragging him away from the wall. Um, and then um, he's trying to work on him. And I told that guy, I'm like, hey, get on the machine gun. Because remember, Mikey carries the machine gun. It was right there. And he starts to lay down return fire. And um, it seemed like ages before Seth got there. But finally, some Iraqi soldiers had come up and they're starting to return fire. But, you know, it probably only took Seth five minutes but you got to remember Seth and all those guys were set up within their position mm-hmm. they weren't ready to move um, so they had to leave a lot of stuff behind they, they yeah. you know sometimes you're not wearing your your kit because it's so hot and you're there for it was what a 48 hour operation you just you're not always wearing your kit so they have to throw on their kit probably and, and, and get to us and then when they move into the street what happens the enemy shifts yeah, fire they're under fire and um <laughs> you know um we didn't have our morphine kits, and this was a problem with sort of the process of how that worked. If you remember, we had sent home the guy who was signed for him mm-hmm. about a week earlier. And so I remember uh, I finally had the courage to look at my legs, and I, I didn't expect to see anything there. And there was two two legs, very bloody uh, ACU pants, but they were there. And that was sort of a, a, a relief in a, in a sense. Okay, hey, my legs are there. They're just not working right now. And I went to grab for my morphine, and it was gone. And so the other seal and I are, are, you know, we're in pain, but okay, no morphine, moving on. Um, Seth eventually gets there, and uh, they start working on Mikey. They didn't know the building we were in, uh, and apparently, again, 
gotta love the I think you actually activated the uh the Bradleys that met us on the backside of the building a completely different street I don't yeah. know again there was there was some confusion about where to go and I did my best to clear that up from what I remember which I don't remember very well well the two of the guys from Seth's uh, element grabbed me and I led them through the the stairwell down there was an adjacent uh, door to a building behind them in the backyard so we went through that building to the road that was on the other side a parallel road from the the road we were uh, operating on and it was a it was a main road and um, they throw the other wounded seal and myself in there and then the guy who was carrying Mikey uh, brings Mikey into the uh, the Bradley fighting vehicle and um, we take off and that guy the look on his face was pure exhaustion now within the military we always you know, we, we, we train to the buddy carry, and we do it as part of, like, physical training. But you're also rigid when you're carrying your buddy, yeah. and he's got his hand in your back. And Mikey was not a small boy, you know, easily probably 210. He's about 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, and this guy uh, who carried him was, I mean, he's a physical stud, and he was exhausted. And uh, we talked about it years later because he, he sort of put Mikey down in the Bradley vehicle, and he sat down and just sort of was exhausted and sat there. And I yelled at him, like, hey, what are you doing? You know, start CPR. And he sort of snapped, too, and uh, started CPR. And, you know, he actually came to me years late. Um, and he's like, man, I'm really sorry about that. I'm like, brother, you don't have to apologize. You had just carried him, you know, probably 100 meters with combat equipment on. And, and you just, you know, you weren't with it. You took a second to recover. That It's not your fault. But everyone finds fault in that day, and everyone feels bad. JP, who should have been there, uh, but had cut his finger, if you remember, yeah, um, wasn't there. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, you talk about the relationship with the 506. Again, it seemed like ages from the, the Bradley to get from our position in central Ramadi, Malab, to uh, the uh, Corregidor aid station. Mm-hmm. And I do remember uh, when I got there. The, uh, the medic gave me a little shot of morphine and uh, like three minutes go by and talk about losing your composure. I'm like, hey man, I'm in freaking pain. And uh, I, I regret saying this. It was just like th- stupid things you say when things are going wrong. And I grab him by the collar. I'm like, I'm a Navy SEAL. You've got to ramp that shit up. And, he, he, you know, I could tell the look of sort of frustration as I comes back and sticks me and finally like the morphine hits. And the pain subsided. But what I remember vividly is, one, they had very little capability for surgery. In fact, none at all. And they had a prep us. And uh, two 46s were inbound to get us. And who shows up? Dave Womack, Colonel McFarland. I'm sorry, Colonel uh, Ron Clark, and the senior leadership from the 1st of the 506. In fact, there was probably 100 soldiers out there. And so they bring us out on the stretchers. We're, we're strapped down. And um, Dave Womack has some Oakleys because, remember, it's still midday. And he puts them on me laying on the stretcher. And uh, I flew off with those Oakleys. And if you know the Army, they don't get good gear, especially in the infantry. That guy just gave me his, like, eye protection that I flew off with. But they saw us off. And um, next thing I know, I end up in uh, Al. Out to get him, mm. uh, TQ. TQ, yeah. Uh, for surgery, and again, who's waiting for me? Um, Rob, your counterpart, mm-hmm. and uh, 
all the boys. Mm-hmm. And so the, uh, you know, before they rushed us in, into surgery and, and put us under, um, Rob was there. But they they thought, and in retrospect, you know, I, I still struggle with this because uh, I was almost upset with it at the time. It was almost like rubbing a dog's face in, in its own feces for taking a crap on the carpet is they thought we would want to see Mikey. And um, so they laid both of us right by Mikey, uh, who was declared deceased by this point. And it was just almost like a point of shame, a point of utter shame. And uh, I, I just couldn't even look. You know, the other seal's in tears, I'm in tears, but I just, I just couldn't look. And uh, I know they, they had nothing but the best intent. But at the time, it was just, it was like, I don't want to see this. I know what I did. I know what happened. Um, so they did that. They gave us about five minutes and then uh, rushed us into surgery. And, uh, you know, next thing I know, I wake up in uh, Baghdad and uh, go through uh, another procedure and then prep to get the medevac to Germany um, to, to go through another uh, procedure. And um, the great thing is, you know, that other SEAL and I were together the entire time. They gave us two uh, SEALs to escort us. And, um, you know, Germany, we were there for, I think, three days. And just people kept visiting and visiting. And at the time, it's just I didn't want to talk to anyone. I did want to talk to you and Seth. Yeah. And, and That's where I talked to you for the first time is when you got to Germany. And um, it, it's because I had, I, I had my sit rep to pass. And, and I don't know how. I'm sure because the other SEAL, the fourth SEAL on that rooftop stayed with Seth, he... Seth was aware of what had happened, but I needed to talk to you guys to be like, hey, he jumped on that thing. And in the military, when somebody jumps on a grenade, you know what that means. It is the most selfless act of valor that there is, and um, it needs to be reported because usually if the medical records check out, the, the, the due diligence is done, and it shows that it is truth. It is a medal of honor. And... Um, I think that is where I started the citation uh, to to get to you, um, and then um, yeah, after the three days there, uh, we uh, we yeah, ended up back in San Diego. Just FYI, the only thing you told me, which I asked you, I was trying to ask you questions about, hey man, are you doing okay? How's the other seal that's wounded? And you just were like, that's all you were telling me it was about Mikey. That's all you were telling me. Morphine is a hell of a drug. <laughs> no, man, it's because you you wanted to make sure I knew what was going on. You wanted to make sure that the, what happened. You wanted oh, yeah. to make sure that I knew that you, you didn't care about anything else, that you were just like, he, this is what he did. This is what he did. I'm telling you this is what he did. I'm like, I know, man. I, I got it. I'm like, are you okay? He's like, you're like, don't care. <laughs> this is what he did. He saved me. He saved this guy. He saved all three of us up there. That was the only thing you cared about. And so, then you got home, and uh, and yeah, I remember. You know, people ask me about like you know the the funerals of my guys, but I was never there. Uh, cause I was, you know, we were still deployed, but I know at this point you were, 
Um, and I know that's, uh, I can't even imagine for you what that process was like. It was shame. You, you know, the the way Mikey passed. It's one of the most intimate ways, like brothers can pass with one another. It's you know it, when we're out there in the conduct of a fight, a, a guy gets shot laying down fire. It, it's selfless, but when somebody makes a sacrifice by jumping on a grenade, that that is that is a message of hey, this is my gift to you keep my memory alive and live well but to the guy that is saved all you feel is shame and and I know you you felt these same sort of feelings as you know ultimately you're responsible for these guys um and, and I think we all conducted our career with god help me if there isn't anything I could have done in the planning and risk mitigation and preparation for this mission or during the conduct of the mission that brings my guys home, then I am wrong, and that is on me. And so to come home, even though everyone was was so welcoming and gracious and and and, and caring, it's just you feel this this like just blanket of shame. And, and funny enough, um, when uh, they had these buses waiting for us at uh, some San Diego airport, because remember it was it was a, some private jet that took us from Bethesda to to San Diego. And so they loaded us up on a bus and then straight to uh, Balboa. And uh, my ex-wife and my daughter were, were waiting there. And um, yeah, my daughter's two at the time, but she would not come to me. They, they had a little sign, welcome home, daddy. And uh, you know, my ex-wife tried, kept trying to, because I'm still on a stretcher, uh, tried, tried to keep giving my uh, daughter to me and she just would, she was clinging on to my ex, would not come to me. And it was just, even that, like I remember that so vividly and I think, in a, in a subtle way, like I held that against my daughter for, for a short while. Um, is like, it was just like, it was almost like a shunning. Like she knew what happened. And she was like shunning me. Uh, bottom line, she was scared. Yeah. Yeah. Bottom line, she's a two year old. Yeah. Hasn't seen her dad in, in <laughs> six months and she's going like, home. hey, I'm used to being with mom. But uh, just, just being at the funeral and, and everything and just looking at all, you know, watching all the seals there to, to, uh, to celebrate Mikey's life, it, it just it felt like the eyes were on me too. And that's that's a selfish feeling. Hey, this isn't about you whatsoever. But it was just this like, how could how could, how could I let that happen? And why didn't you jump on the grenade? Like, how could you not get there in time? Are you slow? Could you not assess? Were you stupid? And um, I still don't have a good answer for that, you know. Um, but what really just you know, we we talked about this is like somebody needs to hold me accountable. That's how I felt. I'm like, somebody needs to hold me accountable. And, uh, you know, the boys picked me up for the funeral. And, of course, me and the other guy pack up the wheelchairs, throw them in the back of the Suburban. And uh, when we get to the um, the mass prior to the uh, the funeral, uh, Miss Monsoor is, is waiting. And, you know, I'm, I'm ready to, to own what had happened. And before, you know, I could even get the words out, she wraps her arms around the other seal and I and says, I'm so happy. 
you are home. Thank you for being with my son. And at that point, you're like, okay, I have no idea what to say. You just totally threw me off my game. Like, you should be upset. You just lost your son, and you are thanking me for being with your son, and and you're telling me you are so happy that I'm home. I mean, talk about, like, it felt like the ultimate mind uh, mind game. But that is just a testament of the family that Mikey came from. And for the audience, um, Mikey was a Southern California kid. Again, pretty big kid, about 6'2", probably about 210, dry sense of humor, and was a devout Catholic and the family's still fun. I don't want you to think of this like strict religious family. They are a oh, no, fun, fun. <laughs> family, but they they are awesome resolute family. in their beliefs. Yep. And they're from Southern California, and um, they're the most selfless family I've ever met. And when you meet them and you spend time with them, you quickly realize where Mikey got it. And he went to every mass at Corregidor. And when I say mass, it's in a bombed out building with some military priest uh, and about five people, one of which is Mikey, uh, passing out communion. And he had faith. And uh, getting to know the family was actually very easy after that. But with time, as time went on, you know, uh, you, you begin to feel like you're a reminder of their son and not the best light. And so I think over time, I you know, I pulled away from the family to give them their, their rest because at some point they have to put it down and move on with their lives. And I don't know if that's the right call. And I still struggle with that today. But, I mean, I love the family. Uh, even there was a sense of guilt from my parents when they met their parents, just how good of people they are. Mm. And, and you feel like, why their son and not ours? Our, our, my, my parents are thankful. Don't get me wrong. They are extremely grateful. But there was a sense of guilt throughout our entire family that we get to move on in, in their family lives with this burden much like we do for the rest of their lives well i can tell you that uh uh when you said it's a reminder not in a good way i I would actually dispute that with you and i I promise you that it's it's a man they they love they love hearing from you and talking to you and uh, and anyone same same with mark same with ryan same with same with all of our friends that have fallen if you can go go and tell a story that they haven't heard before or to tell a story that they've heard a hundred times <laughs> before it's 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 worth it it's worth it at what point did you realize that you were going to heal quick enough to go back into another platoon actually they told me to take uh take a knee and they wanted to give me orders out of team three and to take a uh easy tour and relax mm-hmm. Um, which is the strangest thing I would ever think to hear from a bunch of SEALs, mm-hmm. SEAL leaders. It was actually, okay, man, you need to heal and you need to get back in the game as quickly as possible because that's what's best for you. So talk to them out of the fact that you're not sending me away from SEAL Team 3, so what do they do? Uh, in response to that, they align me into another platoon that is heading to PACOM for the listeners PACOM means Pacific Command. That means we're going over to the Philippines to work with the uh, the, the Philippine SEALs, and you will not be in combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you are doing uh, host nation building. And uh, funny enough, when they align the platoons, there's these little placards with your face and um, and your name. And in the Master Chiefs... Yeah, it's a big magnet yeah, board. Big magnet board. We call it the Ouija board. 
because that's how they stack up who's going where. And so the, the Master Chief's office, this is a no-kidding story, was open, and they've got the three task units with each of the platoons underneath them, the two platoons, and all the pictures of who's in what platoon. And I'm in this platoon going to pick them. So what I do is take my magnet, take some junior officer that's an AOIC in a CENTCOM platoon going back to Iraq, put my picture there, put his picture in the PACOM platoon, literally go up to the platoon space, and again, won't say the guy's name, say, hey, so-and-so, you've just been reassigned to this platoon. Go report <laughs> in. And I'm not kidding you. That is how that happened. And no one ever said a thing. Either one, they didn't... Uh, they didn't recognize that it had happened, or two, they're just like, okay, <laughs> we're not talking about it this one. And I screwed over a kid yeah. uh, by sending him to PACOM for a split, first platoon. Yeah. I don't feel all that bad about it. Yeah. So you knew. How long did it take you to heal up? So it was about uh, four months of debridement. So, you know, when, when I had some holes that were as deep as half a golf ball. And if you don't pick the scab off, then it'll heal in a concave manner. So this little doctor, female doctor, I had to go in every day, and she would pick at the scab to keep the wound fresh so that it heals out. Mm. Called her Dr. Payne, but did that for about four months. <laughs> um, then I had to get the legs working and actually start to walk and then run. Uh, but overall, four months, because remember, when, we, when, when a team comes back from a, a deployment, they go into a six-month individual training cycle so guys can go to sniper school. And so I had time to heal but uh there's still a lot of shrap metal in my uh in my legs uh we form up with the platoon um i'd put on some bad weight um and then uh you know throughout that entire two uh two-year tra- training cycle in fact a guy named derek benson who we both know and derek was killed on extortion 17 would uh cut into my legs the the shrap metal that was pushing towards the skin he would remove it so i had a little jar of of shrap metal uh, throughout that two-year period that he would uh, he would take out, and he loved it. He loved the medicine side. So, And then you rolled back, back to Iraq. Yeah. Do you, do you remember what, anything in workup? Any spectacular? <laughs> you're giving me that look. <laughs> Most people that I put through workup give me that look. <laughs> so, hey, having working for Jocko, y- you know eyes were going to be on me. You know, naturally, I put it on myself. One of those uh, self-inflicted pressures that he's going to expect expect me to uh, to perform at a higher level, given the amount of combat experience I had had. And you had, by that point, drastically changed how the West Coast SEAL teams prepare for war. And it was, um, you know, it, it was good pressure. I like pressure. I, I like when somebody holds me accountable. And, and you know, I think Echo and I were talking about this. You have a very uncanny way of having a conversation without saying a word. <laughs> and you sort of, you know, you, the eyebrows come down lower and you you just stare. And, and what I've said is, like, you would you would do that and look at me during the training and be like, hey, here's the standard for everyone else. Here's your standard. Get it done. Good talk. <laughs> and so, I, you know, there were probably runs where I was harder on myself yeah. <laughs> than you were. But um, I, I do remember uh, Mount. Yeah. Military operations, urban terrain, specifically in Kentucky, mm-hmm. um, and that was some of the best training uh, we'd uh, we'd gone through. And again, that was drastically different than the, the prior workup mm-hmm. prior to Ramadi. And uh, for the guys that had not seen combat, um, given what happened on the, the next deployment, that that absolutely prepared us 
for uh, for what happened. Yeah. I mean, coming back, that was so ideal for me to go back and run training. I mean, there's no better job I could. And that's, you know, I was really lucky that I had a good, good relationship with the Admiral. And he said, like, where do you want to go? And I said, oh, I want to go run trade at because I need to get these guys ready. Because when we got back, Ramadi wasn't done yet. It, it ended up finishing up pretty quickly thereafter. But I was just thinking, hey, everyone's going to be going back and doing the same thing for another. The average counterinsurgency lasts seven years. This started six months ago. We got like many years worth of fighting. And these guys need to be ready for that specific thing that I know how to do. And so I need to go run that training. And, and, that, and that's what I did. And I was definitely, it's funny because like when you're talking about like, but like I, there was a lot of buddy carrying going on when I was running training. And the reason is because I, I, I got the debrief, you know, like it's, I knew it's like, this is going to be, if you get in this situation, it's not, it's not what you think it is. It's going to be hell. And how do you prepare for it? You prepare for it. You do as close. You make this as close to combat as you can possibly make it. Then that was my goal, and it was freaking hard training. And I, I, you know, I had so many guys come back over the years after that when I was running training that were like, "Hey, you know, I just got back from Afghanistan. Thank you." And the firefights were literally easier than going through a block of land warfare. They would be so stoked, and, and it was awesome. That's like the best compliments I've ever gotten in my life was having those guys come back. And and also, I was just talking to, as a matter of fact, I was talking to the guy that told me that you were good to go the other day, and he's he's like, oh, we would have had so many blue on blues if we didn't go through that workup. We were so much better. We were so prepared, and they had a they had a freaking hardcore uh, deployment to Afghanistan, and they kicked ass. And he's like, yeah, we were totally good to go because that training set us up. And so that was uh, that was a real honor for me to be able to get to, to do that. But yeah, I was a little bit, I was also a little bit still, like I, re- I remember, I remember, and I've, I've talked about this before on the podcast, but like I'd be in Mount, like it, watching urban training going on and I'd see like a, a new guy or something like standing in the middle of the street and I would literally feel like a sickness in my stomach, like a pit. Like just like when I was in Ramadi, if you'd see someone on the street, you'd be like, dude, get off the street. I would have that feeling and so when I'd go over and talk to him it would generally be like like pretty hostile like bro what the hell are you doing you're you're in the middle of the street get out of here you're gonna get freaking killed and so yeah um, it was good and and it was good that we put you guys through that because you guys went right back into the fire right back into the fire on on that next deployment and you know leading into that the last month I had my son who I named after Mikey so, his name is Michael Anthony Sorelli. It was Michael Anthony Monsorn. He knows he's not named after me. So, I get to see him born. Less than two weeks after that, we all end up in D.C. to see Mikey posthumously recognized with the Medal of Honor. And then, from Washington, D.C., I fly directly yeah. to, uh, to the Middle East and then into Iraq. I mean, it literally butted up when we were deploying again. And so we end up back in Al Anbar province, Iraq. I end up specifically in Ramadi, which is completely different, mm-hmm. completely pacified. And part of you just can't even believe it. Mm-hmm. You're just like, no, 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 it's, wait, just wait, it's coming. Mm-hmm. They're gonna attack. And no, it's not that way. Mm-hmm. Well, at the same time we were arriving in Iraq, the Sadr militia backed by Iran, Iranian special groups, they're what we call the Quds forces. They're their special forces had kicked off a major uh, spring offensive and this is spring of 2008 and so the army is getting hammered inside of uh solder city soldiers are dying and um they request 
sniper support from the U.S. Special Operations Command, specifically Siege of uh, AP. And that Siege of knowing that SEAL Team 3 had run that similar mission in support of the 1-1 Ready Combat Brigade, uh, the deployment prior, said, hey, can you guys run this mission? So our commander at the time and Master Chief were faced with a decision. We had commitments in Ali Anbar province. You just couldn't shut down a, a location and send that entire unit to Sadr City. That, that, that wasn't going to work. So he had to make a decision of taking SEALs from all the particular outstations in Ali Anbar and throwing them into sort of this hodgepodge unit. So you had SEALs from two different SEAL teams thrown together. And uh, we loaded up a bunch of RGs, I think eight, eight in all, and uh, 40 of us drove out to uh, the Baghdad International Airport and set up a new unit called Debt Defender uh, Detachment, Naval Special Warfare Detachment, uh, Baghdad. And we named it Defender St. Michael, the Archangel the Defender, after Mikey. And we created this badass uh, patch that had the Archangel on there, and we all knew. Um, and some of Mikey's boys that had gone through buds were in this new unit. Good, good friends of mine uh, that weren't in uh, Iraq at that time. They had deployed to, to mm-hmm. the Philippines. And so uh, we are located in Baghdad, but Sadr City is like an hour and 15 minutes away from Baghdad uh, International Airport. And so, you know, they are screaming for us to get in. And again, this unit has never worked together. Some of them had, like, these three guys came from mm-hmm. this platoon. They had worked together, but they hadn't worked with these guys from the SEAL teams. And the uh, both the conventionals and, and uh, CJ Soto were screaming for us to get in there. And so we did the best we could, rehearsals, uh, the planning. We had never operated in the area. Maybe some people had, but those were the very senior SEALs. Um, and we get thrust into Sodder City, primarily around this, this route called Route Gold. And they were trying to, at that point, the, the strategy was to cordon off or enclose Sodder City with these large T barriers so that we can control the entry points into the city and hence cut off supplies or enemy troops uh, coming into the city. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the strategy worked. But the first night in, all 40 of us go in. And um, again, remember, we had this like young intel officer who had just come from, first time in Iraq, had come from Al Anbar, where you're dealing with now... Uh, the remnants of a, of a Sunni enemy, and we're now operating in Shia territory against Shia enemy. Completely two different styles of fighting, two different purposes. Um, one will get their jihad on to the point where they die. Others are not necessarily going to give their lives. So they're going to fight and then pull back and then fight another day. And uh, he didn't understand really the difference, and so the intel wasn't exactly aligning. Again, we hadn't been in the area. We go in the first night. And all hell breaks loose. Remember, Chris Kyle's with us. He's our lead sniper. We're trying to get into a position. And, um, I mean, we had EFPs uh, detonated on our patrol. For the listeners, an EFP is an explosive-forming projectile. Again, if you remember, these were Mm. Iranian-made. And what it is is a concave plate of copper with a lot of explosives behind it. When you detonate it, it turns it into a molten uh, projectile. Molten, like a uh, giant bullet. Yes, and this thing could cut through a Bradley, an RG, an Abrams tank. Cut right through like a hot knife through uh, through butter. These things were nasty, and they were killing troops. 
Uh, we had that detonated on us, and then they owned the rooftops, and they had what we were trying to do to them. And so we are just like fish in a fishbowl, and they are shooting. Chris took one round, and the helmet bounced off. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, Seth had now taken your position as the, and it really is, the, the band got back to, together, uh, Tasky and Bruiser. And so Seth is back with the striker company that inserted us, um, doing his job of deconfliction, making sure we had the support we needed. And shortly after, uh, we called for hot extract. I mean, guys are getting low on ammo. Uh, the, the enemy's maneuvering RPGs, PKM fire uh, on the rooftops uh, down into us. Um, how we did not lose a guy, I will never know. And what I like to say is that Mark, Ryan, and Mikey were looking after us. Hey, you got this one. We're going to give this one to you and reset. But um, we called Seth in, and, and lo and behold, I do remember this about Seth, is as the uh, strikers come in, strikers are uh, its like an armored version of a Humvee uh, with uh, wheels that can carry more uh, troops than a Humvee, larger. And... Um, and they have some pretty good armament and, and weapon systems. And the ramp lowers, and Seth runs off and starts firing into a building. And, of course, it's Seth Dollar's like, let's go! Get on the, the strikers! And uh, the guys start loading up, and the strikers are getting after it to the point where they went Winchester getting us out of there. And one of the striker operators says, hey, give me your gun. And I hand him my SR-25, and he just starts going at it. And I hand him my last mag, he reloads, and he's just getting after it. Well, I'll tell you what, um, humbling experience put us back into the same position, like a new guy in Ramadi. Okay, hey, we've got some great experience. we got to reset. And we, we said, hey, give us like 36 hours. We need you to do some serious planning. We need you to do some serious rehearsals. We did that. Um, and then we inserted shortly after that. But, you know, the funny thing is the only time, uh, like, I really felt um, vulnerable. And I remember I called my brother before we inserted the, the next time, and I said, hey, I don't think uh, things are going to work out here. Um, let my kids know I love them. Hey, and make sure, you know, my daughter grows up to be a, a person of character and make sure my, grandma, my, my son grows up to be a man. And, and me and my brother don't talk all that much but for me to make that call was probably a bad choice and for him to hear that probably put a lot more concern on his plate but we inserted and we got into position and the guy started to knock it out of the park and then mission after mission they just kept eliminating uh, combatants SIGAX started to uh, dive we had one 72 hour operation where the guys eliminated 50 fighters and within three weeks uh, I think they want to limit it, and I don't want to hyperbole here or, or, or plus up numbers. I think it was like 125 to 150 within three weeks. The guys eliminated, and SIGAX went to almost zero. And then there was not much to do for the rest of the deployment. Well, ultimately, what is significant activities, that's okay. enemy attacks, basically. Gotcha. But what's also interesting is that at the tail end of that, the sheikhs inside Sadr City came out and said, hey, look, we're good. Like we're here to make friends now. We're, we're done with this. And what was really awesome was it. Sodder City had been a complete nightmare for five straight years. I mean, Sodder City was completely uncontrollable. And then in a six-week period, give or take, that the, that those operations took place, it was like done. It was like they the the shakes came out and said, "Yep, we'll we'll keep this under control. We, we want to make peace." And and that's what happened. That was that was a. 
that was an unbelievable uh, set of circumstances. Dude, I, you know, the one thing on that deployment I remember, and, and, and you know, it, it showed I'd earn Seth's trust because of the distance between the Baghdad International Airport and Sadr City. The conventional unit that was supporting us when we go into Sadr was in outside of Sadr City. So he's like, hey, Mike, and I, th- I think I spent all three weeks there. He's like, hey, um, stay there, plan the missions. Uh, if you need to do a recce of the site, go out with the conventionals. And so for three weeks, like I wasn't with the boys, they would move to me and then we would execute the mission. But, uh, you know, learning what we had about unity of effort and, and putting your ego aside and, and building uh, personal capital through relationships, we built a great relationship with the uh, the 10th Mountain. And they gave us anything we needed. And we, there was a lot of lessons learned from Ramadi that, we, you know, we took and that we actually stepped up in terms of the mission planning and preparation with some of the assets that the uh, 10th Mountain had. But I was going out with the conventionals by myself. Uh, if I needed to get to another uh, outstation or a cop, they would have a convoy of Bradleys waiting for me, just for me. And I loved it. But Seth realized I was probably getting a little off the reservation <laughs> at one point. We conducted a mission. Uh, we got back to that, that larger base, and he said, hey, go get your stuff for coming back. And I'm like... I actually think I, I barked a little at him, and he's like, go get your stuff and come back. And I was pissed because I was loving – I was Colonel Kurtz in it, in yeah. a sense, yeah. uh, loving it. And, yeah, he, he, you know, he made the right call. So. Yeah. Yeah, I know you guys did an outstanding job there. And, it, again, it wasn't – obviously, it wasn't just you guys. The 10th Mountain did a freaking unbelievable job. The Some of the images that were coming back at that time of those guys putting that T-barrier up right in the middle or right at the – what side of Solder City was it? The eastern side of Solder City. Them, you could see those guys out there putting that barrier – putting those barriers up. The conventional army guys it was freaking awesome, man. What 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 awesome, awesome guys. Then you come back from that deployment – You'd think you maybe you had enough yet? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> you know, on that uh, in that vein, uh, I sat down with that commanding officer of Team Three at the time, and uh, you know, I'd gotten orders to an East Coast team, and uh, you know, he was doing my final fit rep and sending me off, and we had a pretty pretty uh, good relationship. And he said, "Mike, uh, the last thing I want to leave you with is, at some point, it becomes about family." And uh, I'm looking at him, and I pause for about 10 seconds, and I say, Roger that, sir. But within the hamster wheel turning in my head was, are you freaking kidding me? I'm going to deploy as much and as often as I can, because uh, this thing is not going to last forever. Yeah. And um, I'm going to, to, to another command with, with, with a bunch of warriors, and I, I want to get right in stride and deploy as much as possible. But in retrospect, towards the end, I, I realized what he was trying to tell me at some point. You got to pull back. Yeah. So it only took you another what? Seven ten years. years. Seven yeah. <laughs> years to figure that out. So you get out to the East Coast, and now you're doing just more deployments. Yeah. Um, first one was to uh, to Afghanistan with a great group of guys, man. Uh, you know, I loved love these guys. Uh, different feel to them. Uh, but my first mission out was uh, probably one of the toughest missions I've ever been on in terms of just like terrain because we're in Konar province now and, mm-hmm. and how I would describe Konar province is man town <laughs> uh, take you know some of the worst areas of, of the Colorado Rockies and then maybe multiply it by two and uh, the enemy I mean they were this was their territory they had prepared positions it was a dangerous area and to put it into perspective a little more for uh, for the listeners you know of all the medals of honor uh, within Afghanistan I think the majority all of them were in that Konar Nuristan mm-hmm. uh, area to to include Dakota Myers. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, on the first mission, yeah, it just was like an eight-hour hour, um, suck fest. And uh, <laughs> uh, actually, so Adam Brown was, was killed on that operation, and that was my uh, sort of uh, baptism to fire to that new unit. Um, and I remember I looked at a good friend, uh, Jonas, who was killed on Extortion 17, and I said, hey, hey bro, are all the missions like that? He was like, no, that was that was the toughest one I've ever been on. And I'm like, oh, okay, good. So I, I just want to make sure I, I need little, to get my head right. If, if little sanity check, yeah. You're like, oh no, what did I get myself into? But um, it, it was good to, to to work with that that team um, and, and get that experience. And then I got a lot of time with with the maritime side as well, the boats. Um, but did uh, in all with them, what was that? Seven more deployments. Um, with great guys and you know lost some more brothers uh namely uh extortion 17 which was the largest loss of life in, in afghanistan um just you know it it's a travesty when we lose one soldier marine sailor or airman but when you lose 31 um that is just you know that that hits the military to to, to the listeners they may say well 31 you know soldiers you know you guys can easily recover from that you can't it, all the the man hours that go into to training those guys the level of proficiency they had crewed over years like that is like that is a catastrophic um failure or uh you know detriment to the military that is a loss of a lot of capability uh yet alone the pain for those 31 families uh, the children, the orphans, not the orphans, but the, the kids that are left behind, the wives that are left behind. I mean, that will never have any solace um, other than that their loved ones were, were doing what they believed in uh, for them, defending them. Um, but overall, I mean, great seven years um, and just nothing but lessons learned and leadership lessons uh, in terms of being a troop commander. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and quite frankly, you know, my last experience, I learned a lot, which was not my best uh, leadership experience. Um, you know, uh, you, you look at extreme ownership, and uh, there's ways I, I could have handled certain situations better. And I, I think I, I reflect on my entire military career uh, just on, man, I could have done that better. That's what we all do, yeah. sit back and think, man, we could have done that better. It goes back to what I was saying earlier about like if you know the way then the way appears everywhere But when you don't know it you're seeing like little like I even I remember when I was young man young And I would do something that was like partially right, but then I do something that wasn't and I think to myself if I would have known If I would have gotten some reinforcement if I would have figured it out better, you know like figured it out better And you just don't and that's one of the hardest things about one of the hardest things about it's not just the SEAL teams, it's the military. When you complete a job, you don't get to do it anymore. Uh, you, you, you get done with your assistant platoon commander, and you're like, okay, I got this figured out, I'm ready to do it again. They're like, no, now you're gonna be a platoon commander. And then you get done with your platoon commander, you go, okay, I got this figured out, I'm ready to do it again. They go, no, you're gonna be a task duty <laughs> commander. And then you, as soon as you get you figure something out, you're done with that job, and you can't go back and do it. Very seldom do you get to go back and do it yes. again. So we all sit around and look back, and, and, and there's another weird thing about this whole deal. This whole deal is that it's so hard to someone's got to have a real open mind to be able to teach it to people. You know, someone's got to be 
when, when someone's just got to have an open mind. Like I would say, when I was running trade at, I would say, like thirty or forty percent of the people would be like listening and absorbing, and, and which is a pr- which is pretty good. It's actually pretty good. But there was like thirty percent of the people that, you know, I would try and explain something to them, and it just wouldn't. They just wouldn't. Like you're putting the way in front of them, but the, but they don't recognize it. They can't, they can't see it. And so it's easy now that you know the way when you look back at your own experiences, you go, the, the way appears everywhere, but you didn't see it back. I didn't see it back then. I'm just looking at it going, man, why didn't I, why didn't I figure that out? It's one of those things. And I think that's one of the things that, that makes what I'm doing now, what you're doing, what we're doing now as a team is to be able to, tr- to try and pass these lessons on to leaders everywhere and you know, leaders in the military, leaders in police, leaders in fire, leaders in business, everyone, to be able to say, look, hey, this is it over here. I know this is hard to see, but look at this. And and it's awesome to be doing what we're doing now and say, oh, and have people, again, a, a certain percentage of people that go, I got it, I got it, I can take that. And what's interesting about our business now is when people are raising their hand and they're asking for it, that means their mind is open to, they're open to it. They want it. Whereas with, and this does happen occasionally when we work with companies that we're getting imposed on, you know, like the board of directors is saying, hey, go fix this company, this company screwed up, you gotta go fix them. Those people don't have open minds. So they're, they're looking, when you're talking to them, they're looking for reasons that what you're saying is wrong. That's their goal, is to say, no, that doesn't apply to me. It doesn't apply to this market, it doesn't apply. It's like, no, we actually work with eight companies in your exact industry, your competitors, and they have the same problem, this is how they fix it, but no. It's different for us. Oh, okay, it's different for you. It's different for you. Leadership is different. In your specific company, leadership is different than it is everywhere else. No, that's actually not true. Not true at all. So it's an unfortunate, you know, it's, I've been thinking about this too because, you know, I got, a, I, got a, I got a son. You know, I got three daughters and a son. And, and, and the fact of the matter is you don't see yourself as much in your daughter's as you do in your son, right? Your son is a he's he's a he's a, a boy, a small man. And man, what I wouldn't give to be able to just like put the knowledge in there, you know? Cuz you see him doing stuff and you go and you could, you know, th- this is my own flesh and blood by the way that I say, "Hey, that's not a good way to handle that. Here's a good way to handle it." And he looks at me like I'm an idiot, right? Like how would you ever know what it's like to to, to yeah. deal with a school teacher? You know, or to deal with a coach. How would you know what that's like to deal with another person? You know what? You're right. I'm sure you have this. You're 15 now. So I'm sure you got it it all figured out. (laughs) This is the one thing I leave kids with. And I got to tell you, you my my old man was probably right 95% of the time. But did I listen? No. Oh, no. No. (laughs) Dork. Is... You know, fathers will come up to me and be like, hey, can you talk to my son? He, he loves, he wants to be a SEAL. Uh, what can you leave him with? Listen to your old man. Yeah. He may not know what the right decision is or right path is on certain things, but he will tell you what the wrong path is. Yeah. And sometimes knowing what not to do is as valuable as knowing what to do. You know what else I tell when, when fathers ask me to talk to their sons? I, I tell the sons, I say, listen, your dad actually cares about you more than you do he he wants an outcome for you a good outcome for you more than you do I know that doesn't seem possible but 
for him to come and ask me to like talk to you means that what he wants more than anything in the world is for you to be in a good place in the future. That's what he wants. He doesn't want to screw you over. This isn't a plot to get you to fail in life. He actually wants you to win more than anything. So you may want to listen to him. Check. So it's at this point you do you do so what are you at? You did nine deployments overseas total? Ten? Nine? Ten. Ten deployments Ten. overseas. And and finally the little voice in your head says, you know what, I need to uh look at something else. Probably uh probably the toughest decision uh, I had to make. I mean a lot of guys like a lot of guys thought you were a thirty year vet. Easy. He's he's gonna do thirty, probably more. And they usually said the same about me. Um, and Echo and I were talking about this. It just came over me like a uh, like a wave just crushed me. It was just like, yep, it's it. Mm-hmm. Like I'm 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 tapping out mm-hmm. in a sense. At the end of the day, you always ring the bell at the end <laughs> to the community. They're like, oh, you're quitting, quitter. Um, and uh, you know, I, I'd had one last good deployment with a different group, and it was awesome to work with these guys. And um, it, you know, there was a lot of things going on. One, I finally felt the uh, the fatigue. Um, and the hardest thing to do for any SEAL is to tap out. But it's because you know that you're no longer, like, the best guy to push that unit forward. And, and I also was going through a divorce at, at the time. And um, things were just, you know, things were out of balance. And uh, even though I wanted to take the XO of a squadron, um, I knew... I was not the best option for the guys. And uh, even though I could probably maintain the job, that's not the right answer. Mm-hmm. If I could not keep them uncomfortable and moving forward, then then I wasn't the right guy. And so, you, you know, we talk about brutal self-assessments. That was the most brutal self-assessment because I had to admit that all, all, you know, however good I thought I was at what we did, what we did, it just, I'd come to a point where things were degrading. And so... Uh, you know, over overseas, I actually called back to uh, you know my, my CEO at the time. I said, "I'm done, I'm done," and uh, they said, "Okay, we, we understand that that's a mature decision." Uh, you know, he wanted me to stay. He's like, "I want you to be my XO man." He, he actually referred or referred to me to the the, uh, the captain from the uh, the raid in the Philippines, the Ranger, the one that did all the planning. I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting the name now, but he used to call me that. Um, and uh, he said, I understand. What do you want to do? It's like, do you want to go to uh, 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 Memphis and, and like work in the detail shop? I said, no, hey, get me orders to, to Texas. My, my ex is probably moving back to Texas. That's where she's from. And I want to be close to my kids. I, I need to repair that relationship. Um, and you've talked about it. You know, families come second. The bottom of the line, when, when you're at war, you have so many responsibilities on you. One, bring your guys home. That the, the families come second, and so that that was my new priority. And so, you know, testament to the SEAL community, they they made things happen. They realigned things, and they got me a billet at the University of Texas Naval ROTC, um, where one uh, Admiral William McRaven was sitting as the uh, the UT Chancellor. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so so did you go to school? So you got down there, and was it to get your degree? It, no, it was to be an ROTC instructor, oh, okay. and um, they'd also prep the battlefield. And say, hey, the guy wants to get a uh, a master's degree. Okay. To one good for so his that career. was the collateral thing yes. was to get your degree. And so, uh, literally, I had one late week 
to apply for the uh, the full time MBA program <laughs> at UT. Uh, took the uh, instead of the GMAT, I took the, uh, the AC. No, wait, I'm trying to think the of the ACT. ACT. Uh-huh. Um, and um, or GRE. The okay. GRE. Thank you. And the scores were were not so hot. Uh, and I made some phone calls, and I got in. Nice. And um, you know that was a humbling experience as well. To start, you know, we we in a sense, I don't want to say mastered, but we had become very good at become at being seals at the art of war, which takes years and years to hone. And even then, you, you're never as good as you think you are. But you've put it, put time in. You've built some level of mastery. And then to step into accounting and finance with a bunch of 27-year-olds and you're the 39-year-old in the uh, course, and you have this puzzled look on your face. Because one, you've been blown up a couple times. And actually, <laughs> I went to some training where they're like, hey, you've suffered cognitive degradation to the amount of 50%. <laughs> what? <laughs> Can and, you uh, make that Excel spreadsheet <laughs> move slower then? So I was grabbing these younger kids like, hey, uh, show me how to do that, man. I have no clue what you guys are talking about. And he's like, okay. And, and they all loved me. They, they knew there was something different about me. And I remember it came time for the uh, the first test. And one of the younger kids, he was actually one of the youngers in the class. He was 26. He's like, sir, when's the last time you took a test? I'm like, 14 years ago. <laughs> so shut up. <laughs> but uh, it, so it was, it was hard stepping back into an academic uh, environment. People are like, well, dude, you've been to combat. This is going to be easy for you. It's like a different type of stress, brother. Yeah. And like, you know, one, we, we all drive ourselves to do well. Yeah. And uh, the first few tests did not come back uh, favorable <laughs> in, in Mike Sorelli's uh, uh, column. And so I buckled down and um, actually did quite well. Um, but after the first semester, the, the basics of business, it, it gave me a good grounding. And I'm like, hey, I, I, I think I can do something. I actually think I can do something good. Uh pay back to the community they hooked me up to be here where there's no military base mm-hmm. um i'm supposed to go back to the community uh, and i know there's a, there's a problem with vets getting out especially seals they're not getting jobs commensurate with their abilities and companies should be swallowing these guys up leaders i mean the one thing you can't deny is the military is the preeminent leadership training platform in the nation, mm-hmm. no debating it. I'm not it saying might be the world. It might be the world. I'm not saying there's not great leaders out there that have not been in the military. Actually, there 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 are more than 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 people would like to think. There's a lot of great leaders that never had military training, but as a whole, and as you said about the Marine Corps, they tend to turn out this 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 standard product, which yeah. is a, a cut above. And the same thing with the military in general. And so, uh, you know, talking to Admiral McRaven and a great guy named uh, who was his vice chancellor, Major General Tony Kukulo. And this guy's become a real big matter to me. Um, love him. We talked about this and uh, basically walked myself into a project, uh, which we got approved by the McCombs Business School. Twenty vets. Uh, we we did a uh, analysis into the systemic challenges facing veterans when they get out in terms of employment, and it was a you know sixty page paper, which was met with quite a bit of reception. And then again, walking myself into more work. Everyone's like, "Hey, dude." We think you guys have a business concept of this, uh, out, or out of this paper. You need to take it one step further. We'll we'll approve another project the next semester, and hence something called vetted was formed. And to give a quick brief on vetted, so vetted, uh, having done all the gap analysis of current programs out there and all the research we did, uh, we 
feel we found a solution. And actually, Huffington Post hailed vetted as revolutionizing the way that veterans exit the military. So it is bar none the most comprehensive program out there, and it's still building itself up. So uh, a partnership between Wharton, University of Texas McCombs MBA program, and the Texas A&M Mays business program, um, MBA program, we developed something called the Veteran Accelerated Management Program. It's optional five months of online education through the Wharton uh, Business Foundations course uh, as a preparatory to a two-month in-house um, uh, residence program that basically gives them a very strong business acumen over the you know within that two months over the course of those seven months. Mm-hmm. Um, they receive more career development, which is almost as important as acquiring the business skills than an MBA student gets in two years, and that's how to interview, how to, how to you know. Uh, refine your resume, optimize your resume, LinkedIn, uh, mock interviews, um, but they they hit all the, the the basic verticals of business. Even entrepreneurs, if they have a business idea, they come in. They have a executable business plan on the back end. And for those that want to go into industry, actually every Thursday, Friday, they're working on a uh, industry capstone embedded in a company. So during that eight weeks, every Thursday, Friday, working a project inside a company which means industry experience that can go on their resume. And then two organizations offer their placement services free of charge at the end. Echelon Front Overwatch and Bradley Morris uh, Inc., which the two happen to be strategic partners, which I'm sure we'll get into. But um, of the first pilot program at the University of Texas McCombs, of the 25 veterans, all are placed except for one. Yeah, so that so you just kind of t- start talking about the next thing. Obviously, we need to talk about is you know at some point while you were doing this, and here Leif and I were with Echelon Front, and we work with companies all the time. And every company we work with, guess what they need? They need people. They need good people. They need they need leaders. That's what they need. And you know, as you and I discussed this and talked about it, and I I don't know if. I don't know who made the connection mentally. Uh, I think it was you <laughs> who made the connection mentally. You're like, oh wait, you you need people, and we're making people. Let's figure that out. And that's sort of where we got into uh, this idea of Echelon Front Overwatch. We did. It was it was combining chocolate, peanut butter, Reese's Pieces. Um, <laughs> it, it, it it was magical. It was, magical. It was a moment. It, <laughs> it was a moment that was magical. Sorry, Liv. Um, so, no, no, there was a lot of lessons learned from Vetted. And, and, you know, when I started that, there was a lot of uh, business mentors of mine, very successful business mentors that are like, dude, you need to capitalize this thing. And at the time, I couldn't see it. Like, my altru- altruism sort of drove, like, no, it needs to be nonprofit. We're not going to charge people for this. And now I recognize that in a capitalistic market, you can do more good on the for-profit side than you can the nonprofit side. Yeah. We, we live in a, a free uh, society, a free enterprise. And I remember sitting down in, in Austin with you guys. I'm like, hey, I remember you telling me that every company you talk to is like, where can I get like five of you? <laughs> and that just wasn't your game at the time. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, talent is all about leadership. Becoming a talent magnet or having a talent mindset within your organization is about leadership. Yeah. And so, you know, knowing our communities, the special operations community and combat aviators, Dave Burke, you know, our, our resident fighter pilot, the badass. Good deal, Dave. Um, good deal, Dave. We, we knew we could start something. And so we created 
echelon front Overwatch, what we call EF Overwatch. Overwatch being the term that the mission we ran in Ramadi. And I think like it has a little appeal in the sense that now we're overwatching our brothers, Green Berets, Navy SEALs, Air Force PJs, CCTs, MARSOC guys getting out, and the direct support com- uh, personnel. Um, we're overwatching them and helping with their transition. We're overwatching the companies that are in a war for talent. And that's the thing that people don't understand. Even the SEALs are always hunting for the best talent. Somebody asked me, you know, funny enough, what, what, the, what the most important job in the SEAL teams is, and they thought, they thought I was going to say a troop commander on the front lines. And that, that is important. At the end of the day, that's what we do. But I said, no, it's actually being a BUDS instructor. That is like being a hiring manager. You are the filter of the talent coming through, which ultimately will end up in that troop commander and that, that uh, troop chief's uh, hands. And there has to be a standard. We need to put some of our best guys at buds to make sure that only the best are passing through. Well, the same thing applies to business. You are constantly in this war for talent. And we couldn't think of a better talent pool than combat aviators, Cobra pilots, uh, fighter pilots, again, all the special operations guys and the direct support personnel that come out of SOCOM that have the soft skills, the leadership skills that you want. They may lack the hard skills. You look at their resume and it may not scream right fit. Yeah. But once you get these guys in an interview and you see that one, they, they're leaders, that they're humble, that they're willing to roll their sleeves up and get after it and actually listen and learn, that is the perfect employee. Yeah. And if you can get more of these guys into your business, I guarantee you, you will create your own army that will dominate your battlefield in whatever industry that you're in. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's awesome because people, every, every single time I go talk to a company, they'll, they'll say, man, it seems like you just, it seems like you know, did you do a bunch of research to figure out, did you, have you been working with us and we didn't know about it? And I'd be like, no. Well, how do you know what problems we have? It's like, oh, because you're a company. Because you're a group of indiv- <laughs> your group of human beings that are trying to make something happen. And guess what? There's dynamics there that happen with all different organizations that to get together. And guess what? If you take these leaders, because they're amazed that I can understand their business. It's like, no, I don't understand your business. I understand leadership. That's what that's what echelon front. We understand leadership. So we can go in and, and look at what's going on and say, oh, you've got a leadership problem here. And here's how we fix it. And so to take that and say, you know what? we can actually give you people that understand leadership and they can help you solve these problems. That is, like you said, uh, Reese's peanut butter cup, peanut butter and chocolate. That's what it is. So it's been, and speaking of bringing on talent, like when this whole thing was going down, I was like, oh, how about we get a little Mike Sorelli at Echelon Front? Because <laughs> guess what? That's what we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bring bring the band back together. And, you know, that's why that's just been, it's been awesome. And if anyone that's come to the muster, um, you know, Mike's, Mike's putting putting on a, a great uh, talk about leadership inside the muster. Freaking everyone loved it. Uh, I, myself included. Mm-hmm. And yeah, going out working with companies again, now we just have someone else on the team that can get out there that understands leadership, that sees solutions. We're bringing, we've been bringing you out on a bunch of stuff now so you see other companies and you see you're starting to take even what you learned in school, put that on top of the practical applications that we see now. You know the way so you see it everywhere you look. So that's, uh, that's, that's another benefit. So that's where you're at now. Talk about getting out. In the, I mean, you talk about what gets you out of the bed in the morning. And every company is like, do you love what you do? I'm like, the fact that Jocko, Leif, myself, JP, Dave, um, Flynn, 
are on a phone call talking about leadership, I'm like, there's nothing that gets us out of the bed more than that. Like, we actually, like, we love to solve these problems because we've seen them before. Yeah. And, and, you know, people people often say, like, well, how are, how are the SEALs, like, synonymous with business? I'm like, you just said it. You're a unit. You're a company. You're dealing with people. Yeah. We deal with the same issues. Yeah. And um, it, it has been great. I mean, my, how long have I been on now? Three months? Yeah, something And like I that. just love it. And, and you know what? My fiance sees a different person because uh, for, for the listeners, I, I took a you know a high-level job in higher education, executive director of veteran services for the Texas A&M system. And it just, you know, even though the work was rewarding, it just wasn't the same as being part of Echelon Front. And like Jordan has seen, she's like, you're, you're actually like happy to get out of bed <laughs> in the morning now. I'm like, yeah. yeah, I'm with the boys. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a big difference. And like you said, you can't even shut us up. Like we we'll have a, like a we we got this thing called the tank where we'll get together and talk about like a leader like uh, for working with three companies and there'll be leadership issues at each one of the companies and so we'll talk about the leadership issue and then how that problem should be approached and these calls that are scheduled for an hour we'll end up on the phone for you know two and a half hours or we'll end up in the in the tank for three hours sitting there going by and because we're learning from it we're also learning how we can apply what we're talking about it's just it's just it's just an awesome it's awesome to be part of the organization and and like you said to be with people that are just into it into it, it and you know the funny thing is having gotten my MBA um, the one thing that is not addressed in any MBA program is leadership. Yeah. And they know it. And, and right now you're seeing a lot of MBA programs set up uh, or, or stand up uh, centers of leadership within their their, their MBA programs. Yep. And, um, you know, I've had some great discussions. I mean, great professors there. And so, I mean, strong leaders because they, they were private sector leaders before they came back and, and, and spoke. But, I mean, you can – and they turn out highly successful business practitioners. But at the end of the day, like it's not a, a recipe for – for leadership training whatsoever. Yeah, no, that's it's it's been awesome. That's that's why the business has gone so great because there's no one that's offering what we're doing. There's 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 people say, "Well, who's your competition?" I'm like, "We don't we don't I don't mean this in a negative way, but cuz I'm sure there's companies out there that are trying to do something, but there's no one that's saying, "Hey, this is this is what you do. This is how you lead. This is the, this is the way this will apply to your business. These are the principles that you can use and you can make happen." So, yeah, that's been we, we've been pretty lucky in the fact that we we saw the correlations between these two things and saw them pretty clearly. So it's been and, good. And I got to say, so the muster in DC 005 was my first muster. And naturally, these guys know me. I'm, I'm filled with hate. It's just sort of what drives me. <laughs> so, one of my nicknames is grumpy. Um, but, you know, I, I was definitely on board because it's you guys. You guys are my brothers. I'm like, yeah, dude, I, I want in and I, I love discussing leadership. But naturally, you know, I always have a you, – you hold back a little. I'm like, okay, let me see what this muster is about. And um, the fact that you guys are changing lives and people are coming up to me off of one speech and, and I'm just like, dude, what is going on? Like I gave one speech and, like, people are like, dude, you, that actually – your perspective has already changed my life. I'm like – well, no, I'm glad to hear that. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, excited. Yeah, no, just, awesome. I didn't realize the the impact yeah. that it has. No, it's 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 a it's an awesome thing to be a part of. And when I say a thing to be a part of, it's awesome to be at the muster with the people that are at the muster. Not just like oh, we're a part of it and you're not. No, it's like everyone that's there is a part of it, and everyone that there is there is contributing to the knowledge that that's being distributed and increased so yeah it's uh 
It's awesome. Yes. It's a good time. It is. <laughs> and that's where you're at now. It's probably a pretty good place to, yeah, probably we're, we're touching three hours almost right now or good. two and a half or something like that. Probably a good place to call it. And I'm sure we'll do this multiple times again in the future. It, of course, obviously, thanks for coming on. Thanks for your service in the Marine Corps, in the teams, and now Adelaide, Echelon Front, at Echelon Front, Overwatch. Clearly, Mike is out here doing his job. He's done his job, and now maybe we could get Echo to do his job sure. <laughs> and talk about how we can all do our job better in some way, mm-hmm. somehow. Sure. Could you help us with that? One? Yeah, sure. Be happy to. We're on the path, right? Yeah. I'm on the path. You're on the path? I'm on the path. All right. Jocko, Jocko is the path. Oh, that was oh, about you're all all, that. Let's not get crazy here. At the very least, you're all up on the path. I anyway. am trying to be on the path is okay. where I'm at. Good. You don't need to get crazy. All right. So that being said, we're all trying to stay on the path the best we can. So here, here are the ways to do this. Some ways. Some ways, yeah. Yeah. Some suggestions. No, you're over here like you're the authority. Like on this the is path. the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're right. No. You're right. You're some, right. I don't want to sound like some that. Some ideas. Some good ideas. Yeah. Proven. Proven. Most of these are all proven. Yeah. Proven by, through experience. True. You know, etc. Anyway, Affirmative. Origin. OriginMain.com. It's called Origin. Our company, Origin. American-made stuff. Geese. Mm-hmm. Rash guard for jujitsu. Mm-hmm. Other stuff as well. Apparel. Why does apparel get like a like a tone? Well, you know, because you know, apparel. <laughs> because you know how you get, you know, with yeah. the whole like apparel. Like you're not a fashion person. No. Well, then again, apparel and fashion is different. Okay, yeah, because apparel is, is what you wear as a yeah. human. Yeah, yeah. And fashion is something else. Yeah, that you're trying to look a certain way yes. or give a certain f- flavor to your vibe. Yes, which I'm not a fan of. You're not a fan of no. flavor to your no. vibe. Yes, you just your goal. I went to when I went to college. There was this woman who was a Buddhist monk. Sure. And as I was learning about Buddhists, sure. They one of the things that they said was like, "You're not supposed to stand out. Like just just don't stand out. Just yeah. just, just fit in. Right. That's part of the program." Yeah, technically it's not fit in. It's just don't stand out. Okay. Don't like maybe one of those two. And if you're a practicing Buddhist, you can come on and brief, brief me on this. I'm sure I need help. This is how I read it. Okay. Don't you know? Just don't stand out. You're just trying to be. It's it's like an ego thing, right? It's like yeah. don't look at me. Don't look at me yeah. because I'm just I just wear a black t-shirt and a pair of jeans. Don't look at me. I'm just a normal dude over here. Yeah. Nothing special. I'm not wearing bling. As they call it, sir. Nope. So, but there was a there was a a person there that was a Buddhist monk, and the Buddhist monk wore all the Buddhist garb, mm. like the robe and the stuff. Mm-hmm. Which I don't care. Hey, I, I was I, when I was in Thailand. It's awesome. It's actually awesome seeing the Buddhist uh, monks walk around and they come and gather rice for me in the morning. And it's 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 like awesome. It's, it seems to be the most uh, really chill. And religion out there, right? Sure. And so I'm down with the Buddhists. Mm-hmm. But if you're not in Thailand with Bo- other Buddhist monks right. where it's normal, yeah. well, then you, well, guess what happens when you put on the robe? You stand, you stand out. out yep. And you're saying, look at me. And that's what I gathered from. And I was like, mm-hmm. hey, don't look at me. Right. 
in fact, my goal is like, don't look at me. That's the goal. That's the don't goal. Don't look at me. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. So I think, and not to go too far deep into this whole concept. <laughs> Apparently we're just but, but we will, talking we will, about we're, we're here. Hey, you brought it up. True, true. So it, it's less about, because when the Buddhist puts on his garb, regardless of where he or she is, when they put on the garb, that's just how, that's just the garb kind of thing. He's no, there. it's not saying, regardless of where, where, he or, where he or she is. Because check it out. If you're in Thailand and you put on the normal monk outfit, sure. you look normal. Yes. If you're in a university where everyone's dressed in Western clothing, shorts, T-shirts, mm-hmm. and you put on the garb, then mm-hmm. guess what? You don't look normal. Right. You stand out. out. Yeah. And it almost says, look at me. Yeah. Because the true, in my opinion, like a, like if you really wanted to to attain that level of ego less enlightenment enlightenment then you just be dressing like the normal people dress nothing more nothing less just right down the middle right but don't look it, at me right i'm just over here doing what i'm doing but i think and i don't know but i think it's possible that it's less about the result of them standing out and more about the effort or lack of effort or no effort made to stand out because that's what it is buddhist is like you can't be attached to like your personal thing it's like what i'm saying so if you if you're used to to putting on this the garb every day that's just how oh i'm like hey i put this on you guys i can stand out or not stand out i'm i'm focused on my way yeah it has to do with the intention okay well that's cool i'll change my attitude towards the monk that i went to college with see that's why that's why he's the the what do you call it the leader Seemingly, because he just opened mind, man. See that? Well, anyway, how can Origin Maine help us stay on the path? That's why, if you order something from Origin Maine, you could order something that is neon green that Pete Roberts designed. Yeah, those spats are <laughs> or, neon, have neon green. Or you could order something that's just black or black and gray, which or, is yeah. very uh, low pro, low profile. Low profile. The joggers are low profile looking as far as the colors and whatnot, but. They're joggers. It's it's kind of hip. That's the mm. thing right now. Joggers. I've got a few of them. Most comfortable joggers in the world, by the way. Proven. Proven. By experts. Expert. Anyway, how can I keep us on the path? Okay, you do jujitsu. You want to stick with jujitsu? You need a new gi. Boom. Mm-hmm. Best gi. Made in America, by the way. See, same thing. This is another question Damn. that comes up all the time. Is, should I wear the white gi, the black gi, or the blue gi? Yep. In my Buddhist mind, it was always, look, the white gi is just the plain gi. That's it. Agreed. You just wear like the plain that. white gi. That's the way it is. Mm-hmm. I always only wore the white gi. Guess what I got now? Black <laughs> I got a black gi. Mm. Guess what? It doesn't matter anymore because everybody wears all kinds of different colored gis. Well, they wear white, blue, or black, right? There's no, it no longer is a thing to wear. It used to be like if you wore a black gi, you're like, hey, look at me. Everyone was, cool was look gi. at me. Right yeah. now, no one cares what color because there's a lot of those different colors in circulation. So whereas a year ago, I'm yeah. saying only a year ago, yeah. I would have been like, hey, listen, you need to just stick with the white gi. That's just how. Right. Now, the mind has been open. If you want to get gi. a black gi, if that's the one that yeah. is, is you know, what you're into, yeah, yeah. get a black one. Yeah, or the blue one. Or the blue one. Or the green. Or the, not bright green, not neon green. The no. neon green, just for clarification purposes, neon green was one of the colors that are in the spats, which are compression pants. Yeah. For... Stop. So anyway, anyway, stay on the path. Get a new gi. Continue or start jujitsu. Boom, path. 
that's right on the path right in the middle of the path too by the way it's not you're not veering off the jujitsu is part of the path also jo- when I say jogger sure yes they're comfortable I get it Comf- there's no growth in the comfort zone mm-hmm. whatever but <laughs> good point. when you're jogging getting connection. after it running doing these things you want to put on sweatpants right so to speak and you put on some comfortable made in America origin joggers bro you're still on the path big time okay. huge time actually Fair enough. There you go. There you go. Boom. So there is growth in the comfort zone in a certain small exceptional capacity. If we talk any more about clothing, I will be like entering. Look at him. He's outside uh, of his comfort zone. Yeah, I'll be (laughs) entering the fashion area. Like where I'll have to be like, okay, wait. If we talk about clothing, see, even by me saying like wear this and don't wear that, that's me getting in the zone that I shouldn't be in. (laughs) Which is, yeah. I'm not going to go there. I'm done. Just, all right, Talk good. about supplements. I agree. Cool. Supplements. Okay. So, Mike, remember supplements, right? When you're young. <laughs> Take them all. Yeah, right? Whatever's going to throw well, on the, what's, uh, what's, the muscle. Right, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Right? See, yeah, see, I'm glad Mike's here. We can talk about this stuff and get, oh, we can God, talk about it go. even more. So, no. me too. Yeah, what? Give proud. me the, Come give on. me the what? The protein Faster. Powder, the BC, Stronger. Better yeah. in every single way. Lift more weights. Be more big. More supplements, less working out, <laughs> <laughs> and then smaller T-shirts. Yeah, yeah. see, yeah, see, you understand That's exactly. So, but we and we never thought about, hey, what about joint supplements? You know, like you know, when you're young, you're like, eh, uh, I'm cool. Maybe for like older folks or something like this, and I get it. But nah, man, give me the protein powder, give me the BCAAs, right? Mm-hmm. You got it. So current, you know, things always evolving, new information, better information, accurate information. Joint supplements are more important than protein powder supplements. I would agree. I would agree. Because look, if your joints aren't working well in lifting heavy, you don't need protein supplements because you can't lift the weights to get to need the recovery for the protein and for growth and gains. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That is a valid point. Before yeah. you know it, you end up you're forty and you can barely get out of your car after driving for one hour. <laughs> yeah. And here's the thing, that that is funny, but it's not funny, bro. No, it's not. It's real. And which brings me to my other my other point, which actually all joking aside is a big deal. This is the biggest deal that I've actually found. When you when you get more healthy joints, your everyday activity is like way different. Almost to the point where you didn't realize that you had jammed up joints. See what I'm saying? You're like, dang, all this freedom was waiting for me on the other side of healthy joints. Decision making. Anyway, point is, Jocko has some supplements. Joints. That was a long point. <laughs> well, Mike's here. I figured we'd yeah. talk about it. He's got to educate me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, all, yeah, all and and up. get educated as well. Anyway, joint warfare, krill oil, super krill oil. These are things that go directly to your joints. Other benefits, by the way, we can talk about it if you want. Somebody but asked they're, on they're Twitter, dope. "I have my knees hurt. How does joint warfare know which knee to go to?" Yeah. Yeah. Here's how it knows. Yeah, I have, the, I have the answer to that. The joint joint warfare knows that it goes to both knees. Oh, okay. So it's like, hey, cover and move. This yeah, is gonna cover it was like, hey, we got a bunch of guys, right? We got a bunch of guys. They're all uh, like, they've been working I was out. Gonna say, they have some. Issues. I was gonna say like, no, it knows. Yeah. You just tell it before you eat it. Before you take a it, joint warfare, say, hey, left knee. Yeah. Heal it up. Well, you th- it feels like that, but this is what it really is. The joint warfare doesn't know. The knees know. So it's like, hey. Look, we're all working out. We're all doing, you know, various. Uh, we're, we're moving. We're cleaning the yard. That's what we're doing. Are we're we mowing move, the lawn. Are we moving our bodies through space? We're moving. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're doing yard work, right? Me, 
Mike, Jocko, some other folks that we know, right? Mm-hmm. After all, it's hot outside. Yeah. And then boom, one of our, my wife comes outside with a big uh, bucket of ice with waters in it, mm-hmm. right? Jocko's a little bit bigger. He may have worked a little bit harder than us. He's Most gonna. Likely. He might. He might need some <laughs> more water. Mike worked a little bit. He might need a certain amount of water. But we all need varying amounts of water. Who some needs of, the least water? Uh, you let's know, I've been. Let's call it what it is. <laughs> let's say I've been in the shade. Maybe not working that much. <laughs> I may need a, a half bottle of water. Yeah, See what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. You were assessing. Yeah. So yeah. my wife is the joint warfare with all the omega threes and all the all the stuff, oh, okay. the nutrients. You guys are the knee. Jocko's the bad knee. Obviously, I'm the good knee. I need less of that stuff. So we, uh, the knees choose well, how much water we need. This is, and this is the, what's cool about this is this is all, this is all scientifically proven a hundred percent that yeah. the knee will draw yeah. in the joint. The knee warfare. knows the joint warfare doesn't know the knee knows. See what I'm uh, saying? Check Doctor yeah. Echo. That's literally yeah. how how it works. Yeah. Also, yeah, but yeah, very important supplement. You'll know. Just take it. You'll know. And uh, yeah, discipline. You can take that. You might have seen the video that Echo Charles made about discipline, that I, t- that I was taking three scoops of discipline yep. and that it put me into, a, let's just call it the zone. The zone. Jiu-Jitsu excellence. The, jiu-jitsu, the zone of Jiu-Jitsu excellence. Yeah. And you spliced up that video. Yeah. You spliced it up. I got to say thank you. You spliced it up to make me look pretty good. <laughs> I was all grinding on Dean. And yeah. I was all had Andy's arm. And I was like, dang, I look good. Yeah, I think the, that was Eric's just so, arm. Just so everyone knows, yeah, the rolls don't always look like that. Yeah, we got some good little clips of You want to hear something actually really funny about that? The funny you bring that up. Okay, so all that foot. Remember when I came yeah, and just yeah. filmed or whatever, right? And you're rolling with Dean for a yeah, lot of that time. Yeah. And, you know, when you roll with Dean, it's not, you're not just dominating. Dean is good. So he was kind of getting you for a little bit. So Dean, like literally that night, he's texting me, hey, send me that footage. Hey, send me that footage. I want to see the footage. I want to see the footage. I want to, you know, this and that. And I was like, ah, you know, I don't know. You know, I'm kind of, and he's like, hey, I won't post on the internet. Just send me the footage. And I was like, okay, didn't send it to him. I forgot. Uh I wanted to. But then I was like, shoot, should I send him this footage? You know what? Like, what if he posts on the internet or whatever? man? That's what I'm thinking. But I'm like, okay. Here's the thing. Uh, Andy said something like that. Like you were filming and Andy's all. Oh, hey, do you want to roll? Even though he's here filming, I was like, dude, I don't yeah. care. Yeah, okay. People good. should. Oh, oh, jujitsu doesn't work on Jocko. Yeah. He's not going to tap out. No, no, actually, jujitsu works on Jocko, and Jocko taps right. out when freaking Jocko gets caught in a damn arm lock. Yeah, yeah. So, so Dean wants this this footage. Mm-hmm. So I go kind of look through the footage, and there's one of him. He takes you down. It was oh, like yeah, yeah. funny. No, he's sitting he on, his butt. Yeah, he's on his butt. He takes you down, down while he's sitting yeah. down, by the way. Oh. And then he like mounts you, and he's like grinding his elbow. Yeah, in your, just I was like, horrible torture. Let me not put that part in it. Yeah. So yeah. So I made you look good. And, and what sucks is like I was doing good because I was yeah. kind of getting after it. Yep, that's the part. And I put then in. yeah, yeah, exactly. He made me look good. So everyone, me, I thank you. Dean Lister does not thank you. <laughs> Sorry, Dean. Hey. Also, you know, you talked about protein not being important, and I actually think you're wrong. Well, technically. You need protein, and you might as well get your protein from the what's commonly known as the only real source of protein that's good, which is milk. Yes. <laughs> milk is milk. Do you know what milk is? I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah he heard. He heard. Oh, you haven't he tried it yet? It. I have not tried it. Oh, man. Yeah. Sorry, dude. We'll give you some milk mm-hmm. immediately. We'll get spoon up here. Yeah. Yeah, you, you're... you're you don't even know what you're missing. It's, yeah. It's, it's a bummer. So, yeah, you get milk. Peanut butter milk will be out. Peanut butter peanut butter chocolate milk will be out. We'll call it We'll call it very soon. Within a week, I'm going to call it. Dang, Within a week, peanut good. butter. I've know, had it, and it's 
Yeah, see, which kind of goes, you'd think, it's counterintuitive to his whole thing. Yeah. You know, it's like, hey, let's make something that's like, you know, healthy, good protein, clean, all this stuff. But you know what? It has to taste delicious. You see what I'm saying? It kind of goes against his whole hardcore toughness thing, right? Just like the discipline. You made sure it tasted good. Mm. See what I'm saying? Isn't that kind of funny? It's funny, bro. You think it's funny. <laughs> anyway, yeah, mulk. Good good one. Replace your dessert with mulk and boom. No sugar, protein. It's weird everything. that there's a substance on earth that you can p- replace your steak and your dessert with one item. Uh, and I'm yeah. not necessarily, but I'm, I'm not saying you got to do that, but take, sometimes, you know, cooking a steak is a pain sometimes. It takes eight minutes, yeah. you know? We don't have eight minutes. Sometimes, sometimes boom. Yeah. Makes mulk. up the mulk. <laughs> You're good. Come to the immersion seven. camp. We'll have mulk at the immersion camp. Yep. In Maine, August 26th through September 2nd. Jiu-Jitsu immersion camp, yep. by the way. Jiu-Jitsu immersion camp. Yep. Not Italian immersion camp, because we won't be sp- speaking Italian there. No. Or any other languages, most likely. Maybe a couple. No, maybe, there'll, there'll be there'll Portuguese be some there. Yeah, there'll be some, yeah. some Portuguese. Maybe some Espanol. Maybe some Espanol. Sure. Yeah, maybe, immersion camp. Any other, anyone else that wants to come and speak other languages. All the stuff that Echo just talked about, originmain.com. You can get it there. Yep, it's true. Also good way to support yourself and this podcast if you want is the fact or knowing that Jocko has a store and it's called Jocko's store mm-hmm. okay how do you support yourself with Jocko's store if you want to represent if you're on the path you want to represent you can get a shirt it says Dis- discipline equals freedom two now new designs on there if you care about that sort are of are you thing. still offering the old one yes that's an interesting decision why I don't know because they're different they're slightly different yeah, they're just, you know, hey, uh, okay, so I have Discipline Equals Freedom shirts. Mm-hmm. I have the green one, the, you know, the regular, what do you call it, Heather Gray, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And what's the other one? Like a charcoal, yeah. right? All same design. So I'm like, hey, you know, if you care about this kind of thing, hey, I'm going to go, I don't know, wherever, the post office. The guy at the post office like, hey, that's a cool shirt. You know, your charcoal, Discipline Equals Freedom, cool. I go to the post office, and the next day I'm wearing the Heather one there. He's like, bro, like. What up? You just like that same design so much? You get it in all colors? I say yes, but it's I'm still left with the thought like, man, maybe I should get a different design. But I like discipline equals freedom. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Boom! Fashion I get the situation. I get the this new design. I come on. back to the post office. The guy's like, hey, I like discipline equals freedom too. That's dope. But I'm still he still has the sense like, okay, he has more than just that one design. See what I'm saying? See what I'm saying though, right? I do. Yeah. I mean, I know I'm kind of overstating it, but it's still, it's a thing. It's not nothing. Okay. So on Jocko's store, you can get rash cards, t-shirts, trucker hats. You can get other hats. Hoodies. You can get hoodies. You can get legit hoodies and, and Hawaiian hoodies. Hawaiian hoodies. If you don't know what Hawaiian hoodies means, which we don't, because Jocko made that up. It's just a lightweight hoodie. <laughs> well, it could be called Southern California hoodie too. No. Yeah, it could. No. Sure it could. Sometimes it gets to be 38 degrees in Southern California. The Hawaiian hoodie ain't going to cut it. Yeah, I think you're right about that. So, All right. no, nonetheless, no. lightweight. They look nice. Yeah. And anyway, if you want to represent jockelstore.com, if you like something, get something. Good also, way to support. Also, subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't, you can subscribe to it. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. If you leave reviews, I read them. Sometimes they make me laugh. Yes. That is good. Yes. Because they can be rough, but then you read a, a good review that yep. makes you laugh. That's yep. positive. Yep. So make that happen. It works. 
Also YouTube, by the way, if you like the video video version of yeah. this podcast. And the Warrior Kid podcast. If you haven't been listening to the Warrior Kid podcast, check it out. Sure, it's for kids. Ask Uncle Jake questions. There's some good questions in there. If you got mm-hmm. kids, definitely check it out. YouTube, you can see Echo's legit, supposedly legit videos. Oh, yeah, the excerpts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cool. But also the ones you do your little fancy stuff <laughs> to. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, man. Uh, th- uh, again. You're super sensitive about video making. <laughs> Everyone should know <laughs> no, that. Not. No, I'm not. Oh, okay. Cool. No, I'm not. Cool. <sighs> anyway. Um, yeah, someone, you made it, you made the muster video? Yeah. And someone, this is an interesting point. Someone put, someone, I posted it mm-hmm. to my Facebook. I I posted sure. there and, and there's, you know, people commenting and then someone wrote, no credit to Echo. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> that's How about okay. Echo just, did, he's doing his job and he's yeah. proud of it. Yeah, that's it. Doesn't Live. want that kind of credit. Yeah, no, no credit. Um, I actually, I think Echo it, made the video. It, Yay. The tri- <laughs> you did your job. Yeah, I know you did what you're supposed to do. Good, right, congratulations. Good, good, good job. I, well, I think technically too. In I mean, in the spirit of just accuracy, I think most people kind of know that I made the video. Yeah, like because I just make the video. That's like a, the routine, right? That's what, what it seems like. Anyway, anyway. Check. All right. Yeah, we're kid podcast is dope. That's on YouTube as well. By the way, also. If you want to vary up your workout, which I think is an important thing, but, you know, hey, people are people, so and people are different. But if you want to vary up your workout, try some new stuff, go to onit.com. Slash Jocko, you get some new gear. Gear in all capacities, by the way. Sure. All the way down to socks. You, uh, we have the club. It's a club. It's a heavy club, huh? I'm going to have to check this out. Yeah. yeah. No, no, the club that you picked yeah, up earlier. Yeah, oh, you, you were like, hey, are you going to do like, some oh, juggling? This, this is for juggling? And you're like, yeah. oh, no, that's not for juggling. <laughs> You'll kill somebody, and probably yourself. Yeah. But he see that backs up the point that I said before about those. Those are like, oh yeah, you know, like cool. It's a club. It looks like one of those clubs that they juggle. You yeah. know, the little pins you or whatever. Die. Yeah, and you pick it up. You're like, bro, I can't juggle that. That's like something you work out with. And here's the thing. Yeah, there's full workouts with that club, and there's varying weights or whatever. Anyway, you go to the website. You can see, um, you know, what workouts to do. A lot of good info on there. You know, switch up your workout, man iTunes, Google Play, MP3, you can get Psychological Warfare. It's an album. And yes, it has tracks. Yeah, it and tracks. it's just me telling Echo and you, if you're listening, yeah. not to be weak at that moment in time. Yeah. No. It, it, nope. it, hel- it helps. <laughs> it helps you not be weak. We're working on the second album. Well, I should say I'm compiling the thoughts for the second album which seems like we've determined the working title at this point is All Your Excuses Are Lies. Yeah. Because that right. one seems to be uh, hit home with yeah. me, with everyone. Jocko White Tea, you can get it on Amazon in Canada and in America. You can get dry tea, little tea bags that you brew, or you can get the can, <laughs> which we're going to put all the big unhealthy energy drinks, we're going to put them out of business. Yeah. Yep, that's the, that's the prediction. Sure. Because why would you not drink Jocko White tea? Why would you drink something that's going to kill you when you can dr- drink something that's going to make you more healthy? Yeah, that's good. Question. And it tastes better, and it makes you feel better. Is there, do you have an, any answer to that? I don't have That's an right, because I'm right. And yes. your your attitude is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, books, if you're on Amazon anyways, Weigh the Warrior Kid and Mark's Mission and Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. If you want that on audio, it's not an audible book. It's 
MP3, iTunes, Google Play, all that other stuff. Amazon. Extreme Ownership, which was written by me and my brother Leif Babin. It's about leadership. And we have a follow-on book to that called The Dichotomy of Leadership, which is coming out September 25th. And we're getting some feedback on it right now, and people are really stoked. Leif and I are definitely stoked on it. It's uh, cool. Cool, yeah. cool book to write. It's a little problem that little area that it's the area that people have the most problems with. Yeah. How do you balance between being too much of a micromanager and being too yeah. loose? How do you how do you manage the being communicating too much with the group and too little? With how do you dev- how do you manage being too close to your people or too or too distant. distant from your people? So all those little things, all those little balances that you have to figure out as a leader, they're in that book. Check it out. You can pre-order it anywhere. If you pre-order it, it's helpful because that way our publisher, who is you know just not aware, they're not in the game, they're not listening. To this, actually, some of them are listening. To this podcast, right? <laughs> Dang, if they're listening to this podcast, they should be thinking, oh, you know what? We need to print a bunch of these books. Don't miss out on the first edition. Mm. You don't want the second edition. You might end up with it if you don't order it. But and speaking of which, for leadership training if you've read the book you need a little bit more inside your organization echelon front we solve problems through leadership it's me Leif Babin JP Dinell Dave Burke Flynn Cochran and now as you have heard my brother Mike Sorelli muster 006 muster 006 in San Francisco October 17th and 18th Mike you kind of talked about this but you're feeling like the muster had will have good impact on people it's it most definitely is going to have impact on people. It, it's been shown. And just the two days I attended, uh, I walked away. I came right back to Jordan. And I'm like, I call her. I'm like, dude. She's like, don't call me, dude. I'm like, dude. <laughs> okay, I, I, I'm blown away. It, in fact, the funny thing is, you remember there was a green beret that came. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, for the listeners, hey, you know, there's there's strife, inner rivalry, rivalry between the, the the communities, all all for fun. Yep. But even he looked at me and he's like, dude, this is amazing. These guys are having an impact. And we are going to a very unique place, Silicon Valley, that is without a doubt one of the most uh, innovative places. Sometimes lacks leadership. Yep, yep. Has innovative products, but lacks leadership. So this is going to be magical. Well, (laughs) it will be magical. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's one of the things. One of the reasons is because the companies we work with up in Silicon Valley, a lot of times they have the technical capacity. They're smart. They they even have the business understanding. But the only thing that they need, especially once they start to grow, is they need they need better leadership. And so that's why we the companies we work up with that we work with up there, we know that they need this. And so that's why we're doing this one in San Francisco. October 17th and 18th, um, come on out. You can register at ExtremeOwnership.com. You'll see that on this one, you'll see like a lot of people from the last one because they'll like keep coming, you know what I mean? Because not only the updates or whatever, but just like how you were saying earlier where the more, okay, you learn something, then you go to the field. You know, you practice, you you know, practice, yeah. you, you perform, then you're like, oh, wait, okay, now it, other wait, problems what, arise, what you understand it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I solved you know, this problem, now this other problem popped yeah, up. Yeah, because I, I see it differently now. Mm-hmm. I see it more fast, so boom, I'm going back to the muster. Yeah. See what I'm saying? And then boom, back to the field. So you'll see people there every time. Boom, so getting there updated, was a, updated. And I'm going to tell you this, so out of uh, 005, this, this police officer came up to me, or I should say Mountie, 
mm-hmm. from Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, dude, I want, I want you to come talk to my department. And then uh, when he saw that I spoke with the uh, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, which are my boys, police department, Metro <laughs> Police Department, he's like, hey, you need to come out. So we're coordinating. I get to go out to Nova Scotia because of 005. <laughs> That's awesome. How awesome. <laughs> hey, hey, you know, speaking of law enforcement, is we because of the because of the popularity of the muster and because there's usually law enforcement, military, border patrol, firefighters, paramedics, all first responders, basically people in uniform, they've they've been coming to all the musters, but we wanted to do one that's a little bit cheaper, focused on those types of jobs. So we're doing something in Dallas, Texas, September twenty first. It's called the roll call. If you want it, it's the same register, registeredextremeownership.com. You got to be one of those. You got to be in one of those jobs to come to that. But that's going to be focused on that to- sort of dynamic leadership that you get into in those situations. So that's the roll call, 001, September 21st. Of course, now one more thing to talk about Echelon Front Overwatch, EF Overwatch. So check it out. Real simple to put this out. If you're a veteran and you're either in the military and you're getting ready to transition out of the military, S- soft soft support, um, combat pilots, if you're in that situation, go to efoverwatch.com. Or if you're a business that wants to bring this type of leadership into your team, then go to EF Overwatch and you see there's real simple instructions to follow and we'll proceed to move down the path of putting the best people in the best positions and on top of that if you want to hang out with us a little bit more virtually until we see you in San Francisco at the monster or until we see you at the roll call or until we see you at the immersion camp in Maine then we're on the interwebs sure. fully on the interwebs on Twitter Instagram and dash our face at bulky Mike is MJ Sorelli it's M J S A R R A I L L E. That's him on Twitter. He's Mike Sorelli on Instagram. And he's Michael Sorelli on Dash of Facebook. And of course, Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. Echo, anything else? Yeah. Here we Just go. Just kidding. Uh, actually, so uh, going back, you did mention, you said mini buds. Did you say mini buds? That's what you went through? Not buds, mini buds. What's mini buds. So I, I think it's called something. It's called something now. else now, and, and okay. I can't recall. So basically, th- there is a vast pool uh, of kids in college and at the Naval Academy that want to try out and be officers in the SEAL teams. Yes, because the competition is so fierce. The summer before they graduate and actually become commissioned as officers in the Navy, they actually have to compete for the few billets that exist for buds officers. Okay. And so uh, you've got, I think, anywhere from 100, 200, uh, actually probably more than that, trying to get into mini buds. And there's only so many, I think, like there's 30 per class. They run two mini buds every summer mm-hmm. of about 30 uh, candidates each, so 60 total. And there's probably like 500 kids competing for those slots. And then amongst those 60, they're only going to select, I think, like 50%, 30, uh, that actually can step into buds as Navy ensigns. and try to become Navy SEAL officers. So, you know, it goes back to that talent. Everyone is always in a war for talent, looking for the best candidates. So you go to Mini Buds, you 
pass, then you go to buds. Yeah, typically, yes. if you're lucky, if they select you, got you. If okay. you perform well at, uh, at mini buds, okay. So and again, like, this is just for the officer pipeline. If you're an enlisted guy, you enlist in the Navy and you you go to buds. There's no mini buds for you. Gotcha. They do have a prep course now up in uh, Chicago uh, after boot camp. You you stay and you try. They try and get you ready for buds. Mm. But, but that's uh, different, obviously. Yeah, yeah, it's different. Know? Okay. I don't think that's even a selection. It's not a selection, is no. it? No. It's just, uh, that's just like I'm a, sure they could deselect you, but the purpose isn't deselection. No, I think the purpose was to to, to, to see if we could statistically increase the number of people that yeah. make it through Get buds. And actually, I think it's it. It, it hasn't proven uh, effective. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's, yeah, it's one thing. For whatever reason, it's an 80% attrition rate, like almost all the time, or 70 to 80%. So, One yeah. of my friends said this. About buds, about passing buds. That this is a factor. It's not the the, the telltale, but it, this is a factor. Where if you're in a group that, and this is going to go back to leadership, I kind of interestingly, if you're in a group where people are real negative, and then you know when you you're negative, you want to blame other people, right? Just if you're a negative person, whatever, you don't want to take on shit. So if if a guy is seemingly getting ganged up on, you know, like if everyone's like, hey, you're not pulling your way, you know, everyone's getting frustrated, and then they everyone's like harping on one guy mm-hmm. that makes them quit way quicker than if like everyone's like yeah it's, it's okay we can do this you know how like you like if you have a leader who's like hey it's all good guys come on we got this yeah. we got this kind of cheering everybody on and saying like hey we're all we're all a team here kind of thing but if you're like hey you're holding us back and everyone's ganging up on that guy he'll quit way quicker that's what you're saying check there's only one exception i think that's probably accurate to yeah for the most part there's only one person that i think uh, that I've seen uh, sort of defy that, and that was Ryan Joe. Yeah. You would not get in that guy's head, man. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, tough as nails. Yeah, it seems like that would be a, a factor. But, yeah, you get, bro, there's just guys like that who are like, nope, I'm, I'll die before I quit, you know? Where it's just simply not an option no matter how deep you go. It's yep. crazy. But, yeah. Don't quit. People go. ask me what what to do, how to get through buds. Don't, Don't quit. quit. That's it. It's crazy. Mike, any uh, closing thoughts? No. Uh, well, yeah, a few. Just people to thank. Um, one, you know, to you and all the boys that I served with uh, across all the commands I served in, man. It, it, was, it is a brotherhood. Uh, while I might not have gotten along with all of you, uh, definitely learned something from everyone. And uh, it, it is a brotherhood that you will never replace. And, and that was an honor to serve alongside those guys. And then um, I think the last two is one of my kids. Uh, Cameron and uh, and Caden, uh, I mean that is any man's legacy, is how you raise your kids, and uh, they mean the world to 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 me. And then uh, the last person who's changed my life is uh, my fiance, which you're, you're, I hope you guys are reserving the date, uh, Jordan, um, who's changed my perspective on a lot of things, and you know helped me through a uh, what is not easy for any veteran, and that is that that is transitioning out of the military. And uh, I'll tell you what, her positivity is uh, infectious. And she calls me out on my, you know what, all the damn time. She's younger than me, and uh, it's it's a hit to the ego. So <laughs> thanks to, uh, to to that entire group, and uh, love you guys. Awesome, man. Well, like I said, of course, thanks for coming on. And also, like I already said, which I can never say enough, thanks for your service in the defense of our freedom. You're talking about all those deployments over and over and over again, man. Keep going back into the fray. It's freaking awesome. And thank you for doing it. And congrats on your retirement. I don't know if I ever even said that to you when you retired, but it's uh, 
I'm glad that you got to be able to retire and it's awesome to be freaking working with you again so thanks Mike I'm looking forward to uh, many more years thanks brother and everyone else in the military that's still out there holding the line doing those deployments over and over again thank you and to the police and law enforcement and firefighters and paramedics and border patrol and the rest of you that are holding the line here at home thanks for what you're doing and to your families as well thank you for supporting those that support us and to the rest of you I know life isn't perfect and I know life can be hard but it is still life and it's your life and there are those that have given their lives so that we can have ours so for them for those heroes live a good life live the best life you can by going out there every single day and getting after it and until next time this is Mike and Echo and Jocko out